the Golden Stallion is here for you. And I told you this was coming up. I said, you know, I've got, I'm going to release another Sovereign Rewind, which is where I've released classic episodes from 2014. That being uh, the specials that I did back then. This is before Patreon was even a thing. And I'd given them a little, a little extra intro, a new intro, just so that way, that way it's, everything's in Patreon. It's a one-stop shop for all things Sovereign Tech. But also, I'm not just rehashing content. I'm not just recycling content, because who the hell wants to hear that, right? Now, I like to give something extra. And I've got, and I, I teased this the other day. I said, you know, I bet I'm going to be able to do something special when I do the Sovereign Rewind, which is a rewind from 2014, which was the Sovereign Top 8 Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. And I said to myself, you know, look, everybody loves Patrick Stewart. Some of us love him that way, <laughs> perhaps myself included. And, uh, you know, like it, it's not hard to find people to talk about the next generation, but I just so happened to have two amazing ladies in the studio with me to talk Star Trek. And, you know, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. So Ellen, of course, Ellen Ball, who is on Sovereign Tech this week, you may have heard her there. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on again, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you're a great friend and someone else that uh, that appreciates Star Trek all the way. And then, of course, we have the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy, who is my partner in crime with many things Star Trek, especially when she puts on that original series uniform. My, my. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. Troy to Sovereign. Please <laughs> come to my quarters. Oh. Very important to discuss. Oh, man. <laughs> it, I remember the little... All right, never mind. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, great to have you on the show, Hi. Stephanie. I'm going to need to calm down here. Okay, uh, yes, so great to have both of you on for this. And I thought what would be fun... So, you know, after this is over, we'll go right... You know, the, the top eight will play from 2014, and people can listen to that. But I don't think that... Yeah, I, I kind of hate to say this. I don't think a whole lot of people usually get to hear from, uh, 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 well, I'll just say it, from women that like that really love Star Trek. I think it's untrue. I think tons of women love Star Trek, especially the next generation uh, and all of that. But I think a lot of people think that it's still a dude thing. I've gotten some uh, some interesting responses and complaints about Star Trek recently, actually, into Sovereign Tech. So I thought it'd be fun to have you two on and just talk about, I mean, you know, you don't have to talk about it as women, obviously, but, you know, as people, your people, damn it, uh, you know. What got you? I'd like to know first off what got you into Star Trek in general, and then I think it'd be cool to talk about the next generation. Like, why is that either at the top of your list, or or what do you think makes it so special? Um, so I can start with. Yeah, that. please, please. What got me into Star Trek was Star Trek: The Next Generation, um, and it the Next Generation was my first experience with Star Trek, and. At the time when The Next Generation was on TV in the, I guess, early to mid-90s, I guess? 87 to 94, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, so I would have started watching it in the early 90s. At the time, I was a 10-year-old kid, and I was having a really rough time at school, and I was just feeling like, I don't know, what is the point of it all? Like, I really felt like I didn't fit in. I always knew that I was different somehow, and I just couldn't seem to fit in with the other kids. And I would get made fun of a lot, and I it was just painfully obvious that I didn't fit in. Um, but I liked science, and I liked sort of the um, intellectual aspect of school, although I often found that it wasn't enough to, like, really keep me interested or stimulated. So I would seek out a, a lot of stuff about space, and, like, I remember I had a book about constellations and all yeah. this, all astronomy and, and things like that. And I, I would just, I would come home at the end of the school day, and my dad would come home after work, 
And I got to spend time with my dad by watching Star Trek with him on TV because he really liked the show and he would watch it like every every opportunity. It was on like I think there was a new one at least once a week. But by that time, they were doing reruns on the other weekdays or at least some of the other weekdays. And so that became the thing that I looked forward to every day. And I thought it was so cool because my dad was also interested in science and he would teach me about it. And like Star Trek was always a little bit they at least tried to be as scientifically accurate as possible. And it was scary how they almost predicted a lot of things like cell phones and touch screens and things like that. Um, So I got really interested in just the science and technology aspects, but also the characters. I mean, I really identified with several of the characters. Um, Captain Picard was like a real role model for me in terms of how uh, his leadership and his moral sense of right and wrong. um, That really appealed to me. And I loved how he was just always interested in doing the right thing. Yeah. And he cared about people and he had this strong ethic and sense of morality that really appealed to me. And, um, I also identified a lot with Dr. Crusher because I was interested uh-huh. in medicine and I was like, Ooh, I, I could be a doctor like her, you know? Uh, another show that was on TV at that time was Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Oh, I, yeah. I liked Dr. Quinn as well. So there were like two female doctor characters that I think had a big influence on me at the time in eventually going to medical school <laughs> and trying to become a doctor. Sure. <laughs> um, and then I also identified with uh, with Counselor Troy because she had this obviously this wonderful sense of empathy. And it was made very obvious by the fact that she could read people's minds, you know, or, or that she could feel sense what, their emotions, feel what they yeah. were feeling. Yeah. But she also had the, the sort of like half human side. So she didn't have like complete telepathy, but she had, she had a sense of, of empathy, enhanced empathy or telepathy that would let her experience other people's emotions yep. that I think for me as a human girl felt within reach, but I knew it was something that I would need to work to develop because you know, I, as I said at the time, I had a lot of trouble relating to other kids and I often felt like I didn't fit in. And so I was like, Ooh, what if I could be so in tune with other people's feelings that I could really understand how to fit in? Wouldn't that be cool? And then, so I identified a lot with her character as well. Um, and yeah, I, I well, I'll tell you quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted I've bought you some of the outfits, but like, I've constantly said, like, you are the real life counselor, Troy. I mean, like, you, you, you really like, I don't know. You just, you even have the look. I mean, you've got the look too, but well, uh, the curly hair. Yeah. That uh, yeah. actually funny enough. Like that was a thing that I always felt really insecure about because I had curly hair and that was not like most white kids. At sure. School, right. You know, and like there were really no other girls with curly hair in my class when I was growing up. And I got made fun of for that a lot as well. And I didn't yeah. know how to take care of my hair. So actually seeing just seeing a character with long, curly, beautiful hair was helpful, too, because it's like, oh, yeah, OK, that can be beautiful. You don't have to have straight hair to be beautiful. Yeah. Star Trek. I mean, even something like that. It's amazing where Star Trek brings in diversity in so many interesting ways. Yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you continue on if you have more. That's. Um, yeah, no, I just I thought all of those characters were really cool and had a huge influence on me. And it was just 
that was the thing that I looked forward to. I, I don't want to say it was like an escape, but it was kind of a fantasy escape. That's from, okay. From the school environment that I was in that I really wasn't having a very good time in. Um, I mean, I don't think I got into an unhealthy sense of escapism, but it was just like, that was the thing I looked forward to every day. Yeah. Coming home and watching an episode of Star Trek. And I didn't get, uh, you, you and me recently rewatched the whole Star Trek The Next Generation and all of the Star Trek series, except the original series. Yes. Um, we recently rewatched like all of the episodes and I caught so many things, like most of the episodes of The Next Generation, I remembered seeing them the first time in the, in the 90s, but I there were things at that time that went over my head that I didn't quite get. So it was great to rewatch them as an adult. And it even reminded me back, like it sort of took me back to like that time of being like 10 to 12 years old. And like, I remember, I remember like being able to access some memories about that time that I didn't have access to. It kind of like jogged my memory for other things that were going on in my life. The first time I saw those shows. So that was really, really cool. That was like a self-archaeology kind of expedition (laughs) to go on. (laughs) And I I really liked it. And yeah, just once I was hooked on The Next Generation, of course, any other Star Trek was appealing because they kept so much consistency within the universe and they were all kind of similar. But they all brought in these really interesting characters and these characters that were really relatable. And um, you started to see that in the future, people have a lot of the same problems that they've always had and always will have, you know, and that was cool and comforting and interesting. Um, So I think, yeah, I think that's when I really started to fall in love with Star Trek. And um, honestly, I really haven't gotten into the original series too much. But, we'll work on that. Yeah, it's a work Some in point. progress. Yeah. But the other ones, yeah, just amazing. It's Star Trek universe continues to get better and better. Absolutely. I've seen pretty much all the movies except the movies from the original series time frame and all the series, including Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. So for you, started very young. Yeah. Yeah. Same, yeah. Same for me. Same for old, me. Yeah. yeah. Ellen. All right. How about you? How did you first get into Star Trek and, you know, go from there? Okay. Yeah. Well, I was already an adult by the time I got into Star Trek. Yeah. Um, so growing up, I was always interested in science fiction because it was kind of that escape for me. I was excited to learn about all these fantastical worlds that might exist outside of ours and and what possibilities could exist that, you know, people are just so... Uh, it, it's ingenious, the ideas that some people come up with. and Sure. Uh, I guess, to me, science fiction was something that... Maybe it's science fiction now, but... In, in a few decades, maybe, it'll be fact. Um, and, and so I've always been fascinated by that genre, but when I moved to New Hampshire and started talking to everybody here, I realized, like, this is some cultural phenomena that I'm missing out on. I've never seen Star Trek With before. With Star Trek, right. Yeah, yeah and, and so many people were referencing it. Um, and I figured, well, I like science fiction. Why not dive into this? So I started with the original series because I wanted Ooh. to begin from the beginning. <laughs> and, um, oh my gosh, as soon as I started watching it, I just could not pull myself away. It was like the first episode, and then it was like, one more. <laughs> and then it turned into five. It's like potato chips. <laughs> Can't just have one. Yes, yeah. yeah. It was just, it was amazing because, uh, you know, the prime directive, like Stephanie was saying, is it's really that strong moral uh, the belief system that they upheld throughout, uh, you know, the, all parts of the universe that they were exploring. Yeah. Every living being that they came into contact with, they're like, oh, well, uh, they, they treated it with respect. Right. And, uh, and they, they gave it, um, 
you know, reign over its own domain or whatever. Um, so I, I really appreciated the fact that Star Trek presented ethics as, uh, you know, as, as humans would, or like, it was kind of like a projection of what would future humans be like if we were sort of, I mean, not that we're ideal beings or anything, especially yeah. uh, in Star Trek, you can still see people's flaws. Yeah. But, you know, on the trajectory of developing into a better species. Yeah, what we can be. Yes, yeah. exactly. And yeah. that's something I've always loved about Star Trek. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful aspect. And I think what you were touching on is also something that a lot of people maybe don't pick up on consciously, which is... You know, you see humans treating these creatures that look just weird as hell with absolute respect. And it's like, oh, you know, and I think so many people who maybe they feel that they're weird for whatever reason, and even they're different within the human species. And they see these oddities getting treated with respect, and I think that really appeals to people. So, But again, it goes back to this is what we could be. Yeah. And that's a real appeal. Especially in the original series, some of the creatures in there were Oh, very weird. weird. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's a fact. (laughs) But it really did make me think about that, too. Like, it just, when you would see, like, not only a really diverse uh, cast and crew, mm-hmm. but also, like, a lot of the alien species, it just, it made these concepts so simple of, like, tolerance and, like, yeah. progressive kind of values, I guess, of, like, inclusion of people and honoring the personhood of all creatures and beings no matter if they're human or other species or even if they don't have a form that even resembles human you know it's still a life form and just honoring like all different kinds of life so yeah I thought that was really cool and I thought the prime directive was very like libertarian in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. not to make it libertarian because it's kind of like almost bigger than that I guess it's It's bigger yeah, yeah it's bigger than that but I, I just, I really identified with a lot of the values that they were presenting and yeah. it made them so clear. Like it's easy to, it's easy when we're in this world to say like, well, don't you think that like, um, immigrants like deserve a chance at like a better life or whatever. And people get really caught up in the xenophobia and like a lot of the issues. But when you zoom out and think of it as like, okay, this planet wants to like join the Federation or something like there's this, there's this planet that's not quite so advanced and maybe they're like a little bit religious, but they really want to like contribute and join the Federation. Like, you know, it's, you can think about those those questions in like a whole different way. And I think that was really helpful for a lot of people. I hope so anyway. Sure. To have loftier goals than just, you know, day-to-day living. And also it's this idea of having, uh, something that's sacred, I think, uh, and, and not necessarily in a religious way, but life is sacred as it's like the highest goal. It's, it's something worth protecting and it's something that's beautiful and, um, I, I just love the fact that Star Trek was about going out and exploring and finding all these strange living things. And, um, and, and the cast of characters on there, too, was very diverse, uh, especially with, like, Captain Sulu and Uhura and mm-hmm. um, Spock. Spock was my favorite character. Yeah. <laughs> I love the Vulcan logic. Yeah. It, it was very relatable to me. But then, you know, you also get to see the vulnerabilities in having that personality, too. Right. Uh, and that's yeah. something that I thought was beautiful about the series was um, because it, it Spock and then McCoy, uh, you know, they're they're always like foils for each other. Right. And <laughs> the interplay that happened between them kind of showed me like, 
well, you can't always be super logical. You won't get along with everybody if you're just, like, very dry and precise. And then Captain Kirk was, like, the, you know, he's the crazy cowboy in, in the Wild <laughs> West. <laughs> he's always taking risks and getting the ladies into bed. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk is awesome. Yeah. But <laughs> it's a different flavor, but he's awesome. Yeah. So, so you get to watch the next generation. Like, mm-hmm. I, like, what was that? What was that experience like? Because first you started with the original series, which yeah. awesome that you got through that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, I love the original series myself. But um, so you get to the next generation. What did you think of that? Uh, it was so different from the original series. I was shocked at the beginning. I was like, this is nothing like what I've been used to. Like, <laughs> is this even Star Trek? But. I quickly got over the shock and just started, you know, falling in love with the characters again. Um, like Captain Picard, at first I thought, oh, he can never replace Kirk. But then, you know, <laughs> you see he's got all of these different interests and, uh, you know, like he likes archaeology, I think. Um, yep. And, and he he reads books and uh, he interacts with the crew a lot more. Yeah. Um, and, and you also see more of the crew interactions too in in the next generation like it's not just about the captain and the top officers it's also about everybody else on the ship yeah you definitely get a bigger flavor of what like starfleet life is like in that yeah yeah yeah. it it was a really good depiction of um you know a community like a floating community out in space yeah yeah i love that yeah I, i really enjoyed that and i also enjoyed um they they had better effects i guess that that was something that i appreciated too coming from the original series yeah in fact a lot of people don't realize like the the effects in next generation put the show over like a lot of people when it was getting pitched to paramount and they made the two-hour pilot the effects are what made everybody go out and go um wow yeah let's take let's make 24 more of these you know like let's do this and uh so they are they were at the time especially they were that good and they still look good but uh yeah tremendous yeah and I thought it was brilliant. Like the first episode, I, I think the first episode was when the Q continuum was um, putting them on humanity trial on for, trial. Yeah, encounter yeah. a fur point, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I didn't understand what was going on exactly in that episode, but then later throughout the series, you see more of the Q continuum and how they're this like all-knowing beings uh, that that just exist throughout space and time, and then. Yeah. Going back and watching that episode again, I was like, oh, this is like, this is actually really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's so many aspects of The Next Generation that went far beyond the original series because they they had the technology. They were able to do it. And um, I guess the writing and, and the fact that it included so many more characters uh, made it very rich as a television series. Yeah, a lot more, a, a broader appeal, I think, because most people, like, have seen The Next Generation. I don't think most people have watched the original series anymore. You know, 20 years ago, it was the opposite. But now, or 30 years ago, maybe, it was the opposite. But now, yeah, and, and, and it is that rich cast of characters that allows for anybody to kind of find something of themselves, I think, on that bridge. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I just... You know, like I said, I loved all of the characters. I loved the captain. Uh, Troy was awesome. 
the doctor too. I like that they were friends and they would like do yoga together. That was that was so cool. I, I love that. I mean, just simple things like that. You don't get that that often in science fiction where people are just like going through their day. Yeah. You know, and and it's fun to see that in space particularly. Yeah. yeah. And the holodeck that was also that's one wild. Of my favorite things. Yeah. That was a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine the fun they had in that holodeck? Uh, oh boy, <laughs> there have been old treatises done on that. I assure you, and and well, they go where they need to go. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I would be actually really curious once um, Star Trek Discovery is more fleshed out, like to watch them in the chronological order of not when they came out, but like when they supposedly happened. So like. First Star Trek Discovery, then Enterprise. Well, you'd watch Enterprise no, first. First Enterprise. Yeah. Then Star Trek Discovery, then the original series. Yep. Then the Next Generation, then uh, I guess Deep Space Nine, and then Voyager. Yeah. Well, it's Those tough. Those are all sort of around the same time. Yeah, because DS Nine and, and the Next Generation are concurrent for a couple seasons. Right. So, but yeah. So maybe yeah. they would overlap, like season, you know, season to season or something. Well, yeah. uh, maybe at some point. We could make that happen. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. Oh, that would be a, like a, a fun journey to go on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Larry, let's ask this. Um, well, first off, so Ellen, original series, Next Generation. You think Next Generation's better of the two? Next Generation is my favorite of all of the of series all of them. that right I've on. seen so far. Okay, all right. Kirk or Picard, then? Oh, Picard. <laughs> Obviously. Earl Grey, please. <laughs> right in her hand right now, too. <laughs> so, uh, Stephanie, I mean, what what is your favorite Star Trek uh, series? Oh, my God, it's so hard to pick one, but I, I think I would ha- also have to say The Next Generation. Okay. Yeah. Kirk or Picard? Definitely Picard. Well, you don't really know Kirk that well, so, but Picard. I know enough. I, I know, I know. I mean, me... <laughs> I know all I need to know. Fair enough. I mean, me and and I've talked about this recently on other episodes, but yeah, like I was really a diehard Kirk fan, like for a long time, you know. And and, but then, but in recent years, it's like no, you know, actually Picard's the better captain. I like Picard a lot. Um, Ellen, what do you think gives Picard the edge? Like, what 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 puts him over for you over Kirk? Um, Well, for one. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that Picard, I don't think, is as much of a risky, uh-huh. edgy character as uh-huh. Kirk is. Uh, he's a little more thoughtful, and um, he's—I I think he's a better listener. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a big thing for me. He's—he's uh, he's just got all of these. You know, you can see much more of his personality in in the Next Generation as opposed to Kirk. I mean, he—he he was pretty much the same person from episode to episode, but Picard has, uh, you know, he's always doing something different. Like, you don't always see him on the bridge or, you know, on a planet leading the, the scout team. Um, sometimes he's, he's like, doing something that you or I would be doing. Right. You know, like practicing his instrument or reading a book. or Hanging looking. out on Risa. Yeah, I, mean, I exactly. would do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's it's just the relatability, and also um, he just seems more collected, I guess. Than sure, Kirk. he's got it together. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was gonna say the exact same thing. Um, Picard is definitely more mature, not just in terms of his age, but in terms of his life experiences and right. his personality and ha- how he acts and stuff. Like he clearly really earned being a captain. Like you can see why he got to where he is today or in the show. And, you know, you get the sense that he probably even deserves to really be like an admiral, but he 
wants to be a captain because he wants to be out there exploring. Yeah. Sure. A mistake that Kirk makes at one point in his career is he becomes an admiral and he realizes that was the wrong move. I Mm. should just stay, stay in the chair. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas with Kirk, like, I I mean, you can see why he's captain because he's sort of a natural leader, but you don't get that really strong sense that of, of how he earned it and how he showed that he really deserves this position Mm -hmm. because he's just not as, he's a little more brash and, impulsive and not as mature yeah i mean he is 30 in like when, when he first takes over the enterprise young. so yeah. yeah as to where picard is in his 50s o- you know older yeah. or whatever uh that happens to be so i think you know and boy i'll tell you like when you see picard in first contact and like he's all he has on is the tank top and he's like holding you know he's fighting the borg there and everything and he's just got this I mean, he's like ripped and he's got to be shy of 60 or something. I mean, it's fantastic. So I, I, I got to give him, yeah, I mean, I got, I got to give him like the looks edge too. You know, <laughs> it's not just everything else. Like he's, he's genuinely sexier. He is than, a silver than fox. Kirk. Yeah, he is a silver fox. A silver fox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll say it. I have no problem. I mean, he, he's hot, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love that in fascism. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and what put it, it wasn't just that though. I mean, for me, what, what put eventually put Picard over, I think was, it is kind of that, that maturity. I don't like to use the word seasoned, or at least Riker would say that that's a terrible thing. You know, mm-hmm. don't, don't ever tell a man he's seasoned, but, uh, whatever the hell that means. But, um, maturity and the, like, he is so moral, like the character is so moral, mm-hmm. but I think that also reflects a lot of Patrick Stewart's own personality because, like he is a, an ardent feminist. He stands up for women, yes, and, women and girls, and he does all kinds of stuff to try to, uh, like, raise awareness. And he talks about how his father beat his mother yes. up, and how he like tried to st- stand up for his mother, and yeah. you know, like all this stuff. And he does a lot of activism in for uh, he, like domestic violence kind of situations. Yeah, he he came right out and said there is absolutely no reason for violence against women ever. You know, and right, I mean, he, he just said that straight out, and I was like, "Fuck yeah, man!" Yeah, you know? and he doesn't just say it. I mean, he actually does actions to try yeah. to like help with help protect actual women. Like, I'm sure he knows he can't protect every woman in the world, but he wanted to do so much more for his own mother, and he couldn't because he was a child at the time. And sure. So he's he's doing as much as he can, and I I really got that sense with Picard too. Like he the character was always standing up for people who were more vulnerable or or who didn't have an advantage in a certain situation. He was the underdog himself in so many situations, like in battles that he would get into. Yeah. And he would get out of them by using his creativity and by using, like, by just thinking of things that no one else would think of, even if he was, like, outgunned or whatever. Right. Um, he, would, he would do some Picard maneuver and, you know, <laughs> pull off a, a great save. Yeah. So... I think like both Patrick Stewart and the character of Captain Picard really had that in common. Whereas with Kirk, like you did get a little bit of the sense that if you were a woman, like he, he may objectify you and he probably would. Yeah. I, I hear that. I think I, I, I see where that sense would come from, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, he was kind of known as like a womanizer, whereas Captain Picard just wasn't like, he would never like women would come on to him on the show and he'd be like, Oh ma'am, I'm sorry. I don't think appropriate. <laughs> he'd like kind of pull down his shirt and say like, I'm the captain here. You know? Yeah. And, and he had like mentorship. He clearly had mentorship relationships with that were completely non-sexual and platonic with a lot of the women in the crew like Troy and and you know some of the other like Tasha Yar like he had mentorship relationships with them that 
weren't sexual, whereas like a lot of other people on the crew would have loved to have a sexual relationship with them. But right. he, but Captain Picard was all business, and he was like just wanted to uplift them. Yeah, very rare occasions that there'd be exploration of like Doctor Crusher and him, or there was the woman uh, uh, from the fifth season that mm-hmm. learns that plays music with him. She mm-hmm. plays the keyboard. They're in the Jeffrey's tube, and he's playing his flute, which I think is just a beautiful moment. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I hear I hear all of that, and William Shatner certainly is. If while we're talking about people, he's kind of gone off the deep end in recent years. Like, I mean, he's really, I, I haven't appreciated a lot of the things, views that he's expressed. So yeah, he's almost become like a like an alt writer, right? Uh, something. MRA. Or... Uh, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, all right. So Ellen, do you have anything you want to add to that, or? Uh, no, I mean, I I wasn't really familiar with the actors outside of their characters. Sure. So, right. I mean, I guess this is good to know. Yeah. Yeah. No, Patrick Stewart is just, you know, seems to be just a phenomenal human being like across the board. You wonder, like, it's interesting, like how much of life imitates art. Like did Patrick Stewart go further with the, um, feminism activism because of, because of his character or be, or like, did he get cast in that role because he was already that, aspect of him was already there like right. that desire to stand up for vulnerable people and like protect you know or were they writing the part around his him his character yeah exactly. yeah yeah like his presentation and did william shatner have sort of an easy time playing a slight misogynist because he already was one or what well you know so or was fun- that just the times and you know it, it kind of is the times Okay, and I. That's kind of a cop out. No, you know, it's it is. Yeah, but you can. So understand the context. Yes, I mean the '60s. Like, in fact, I've heard stories uh, from the actresses themselves, Mm -hmm. where they would go into the like they they they'd uh, want to use like Shatner's shower or something like that. And this is a woman who's going to be acting on on an episode, you know, not like you heard, not Nichelle Nichols or anything like this. And she would go, you know, she'd go in the shower and she'd come out and, you know she'd just jump on him. Like it was just, it was there to some degree. It was the times, you know, like that was, kind of, and that's how Hollywood was working. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that, that there, to some degree, there was the times. Now Shatner himself has really, has addressed this business about what's the real actor, like compared to the actor. And he has this amazing song. Cause again, you got to understand, like I was really a William Shatner fan, not just, not just a Kirk fan, but a William Shatner fan. Um, he did an album called Has Been that came out, I want to say, in 04. And there's a song at the end of it called I'm Real. And he does it with Brad Paisley, the country singer. Hmm. And it is such a tear-jerking song. Um, because he's trying to say, he's like, I really wish I could do all of these things that you people think I can do. But I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm real, you know. And he even talked about there's another there's a movie Free Enterprise where he's talking about and he's relating a real experience where he where William William Shatner says he's like you know he says yeah there's this kid in a burning building he he was dead serious and he he said and they looked at me they're like Captain Kirk Captain Kirk you got to go save this kid you know this is real life he's like all right fine and he goes running in and he and he's like hey kid kid and he can't find the kid you know and then he comes out finally and the kid was with his mother the whole time. And he said he felt absolutely ridiculous. Oh my gosh. You know, I mean, that's courageous, right? And kudos, mm-hmm. but like, he felt absolutely ridiculous. He's, and he said, he's like, I'm not Captain Kirk. You right. know, I, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm not this person. So there, there's two sides to that. I think there's something where, where like, where like say with Patrick Stewart, where his presentation, who he is shines through and gets him the part. But then at the end of the day, the part does take on a life of its own and, and, at the end of the day, that might not be the person, you know? Uh, so that's, but that's, that's an interesting point to bring up. Um, Ellen, do you have any thoughts you want to share on that? Or we can go on to another quick question. Yeah. Just, I think maybe, um, 
I mean, because you're you guys are saying that Patrick Stewart is really this upstanding character. Mm. As we know. I, yeah. think, I think he was Standing even person. knighted, right? Yeah. Yes, he is yeah. Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir yeah. Patrick Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe he was just a perfect fit for the role, but I, I do think that, especially for a TV series like that, the, the character and the script would eventually kind of mold to his his personality sure. as a real person. Um, and, and for Kirk, um, I, I just... I'm thinking back to all of the episodes of the original series that I saw where... You know, like, he would end up sleeping with the, the beautiful woman character, that, or, like, the exotic alien woman. Um, and he was always really respectful to them, but I guess there, there were only a few characters that I can recall where they were female and they actually played an active role in the story and then ended up sleeping with him. Usually it was right. just like, uh, you know, they were there for a brief period of time in the episode. And They're like then, a decoration. Yeah, like kind object. of. Yeah. I mean, it was it was mostly respectful. I don't think I ever saw him say anything derogatory to women. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think that th- that womanizer theme, like, the amount of women that he slept with is far less than what people think. Like, in, in, in like, the, in, like, the, the, in the episodes, you know. Um, the womanizer aspect, I really think it, it's like, it's a cultural meme. It's like not, it's just like, beam me up, Scotty. They never said, beam me up, Scotty. You know, they said, Scotty, beam me up. But like, there's, there's these parts of Star Trek that are like considered a cultural meme and they're but they're not actually what happened in the show. It's just like what people like imagine that it is. So anyway, but go ahead. At the same time though, Picard slept with zero unless he was on vacation. And that was very reluctantly. And that only happened like once. And they went on an expedition together. Yeah. yeah. Which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I look, I agree. Picard is just the superior, you know, like I, I, I dig them all the way. Right. So. Like, I mean, how many people can you sleep with before it starts interfering with your duties as captain? And it's kind of a security risk. And, you know, like, <laughs> don't you think it's a security risk? Yeah. Like someone's going to try yeah. to assassinate you if you sleep with them and you have to be aware of that. Well, it's not the mirror universe, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything could happen, you know? Um, and I, I get like why guys would identify with, with the character of Captain Kirk. He's kind of like, what a lot of men like wish they could be. They wish they could have that ultimate confidence and have everybody think that they're just like a great decision maker and want to follow their lead. And it's very appealing, I think. But at the same time, when you're a woman and you see some of that behavior, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can really trust this person. Like it, it alienates women, I think, to a certain extent. As sure, well. sure. I do think, though, the original series, again, putting context is an incredibly like feminist show. Uh, and there's been a lot of write-ups about that. Sure. I mean, just how like revolutionary it was in, in those cases. But I, I hear, I mean, looking back, and if like you put it on today's standards, sure, I could see that you know people could feel about it differently. But um, yeah, just the fact that Nichelle, uh, what was, what? Yeah, was you heard Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols, yeah. Um, she not only was she a woman, but she was also uh, of African descent. Yeah, right. So that. I mean, that in itself was revolutionary. Like, that was at a time when the civil rights movement was still happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. She and had Martin Luther... people on TV. <laughs> Martin Luther King himself told her. Wrote her a letter. Told, yeah, well, didn't write, like, said to her at an NAACP meeting, it said, you can't leave. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got to stay on that show. Yeah, she you was don't, thinking You don't know how important show. you are. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a revolutionary show. But I, I, I get your point, Stephanie. I really do. Um, but, mm-hmm. I, again, I do think some of, like, Kirk's uh, uh, reputation is wildly undeserved like the negative parts you know and maybe even some of the positive parts i don't know so anyway um all right last question and then we'll we'll wrap this up um actually i'll start with you stephanie 
favorite episode of the next generation you don't have to know the title just like even if just the storyline if you don't know ellen do you know your favorite i'm i'm still thinking all right you can think about it <laughs> i mean my favorite my favorite storyline is when picard gets captured and turned into Lokitis by the borg and best of both worlds yeah, yeah i guess it would be best of both worlds yeah that was something oh my gosh that was so heart-wrenching it was yeah, yeah. oh my god I was really terrified for him the entire time, and honestly, if I had to pick, that would be my favorite, too, because the, it's just so unlike anything else. It's like your worst nightmare comes true, but then somehow it's they so come chilling. through at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he's haunted by it forever. Yeah. Yeah. He cries it, with his brother. Mm. Yeah. That episode was awesome when he when he visits his brother, you know, Renee and everything. That was really, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think best of both worlds. Now that didn't make my list. Um, but there's, and the only reason it didn't make my list is because I was trying to pick ones that people wouldn't necessarily think of, uh, because that's for some people that's considered the best Star Trek ever is those two episodes. I think that might be the best Star Trek ever. Yeah. Yeah. It, like that. it really is amazing, especially considering how, you know, like, I mean, it, it needs, you need to know like how, just how strong a character Picard is for it to be so heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on its own, it's still very exciting and 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 tragic, and mm. you know, it just has all the emotions going for it. So. I really liked the character of Data too, and like some of the stories that focused around him trying to discover his fat his past and trying to fit in with humanity and right. like his awkward attempts to fit in. And I also really <laughs> identified with that, with the awkward attempts to fit in. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I should have probably mentioned that at the beginning of the show, but well, you yeah. know, it's characters like that. And I think Ellen, you could agree with me that Spock also does this where, because they are the odd person kind of out in, in an already odd out crew. Um, they get to reflect humanity. They get to reflect on humanity and maybe where humanity is like, wait, why the hell do you do that? Like, that doesn't make any sense, you know? And both Spock and data, I think are very similar characters in that respect. And, and they, they are favorites in many ways. I think for that reason is because they get to hold up a mirror to, to who we are. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're so logical and they're really analyzing these aspects of humanity that don't, quite fit into logical frameworks Mm -hmm. like there was an episode where data was trying to understand humor uh so he was like taking comedy lessons and uh i think he was trying to tell jokes and none of them were going off on like he would tell a joke and get no laughter right (laughs) and he would uh i think he like picked up this characteristic where he'd like carry around a cigar yeah he was (laughs) (laughs) he thought that was part of the shtick um but it's just funny because you see, um, you know, the challenge that some people have, especially if they're more on the logical side, or even if you're just a normal person. And like, uh, there's some things that we do that we just don't fully understand yet. And it's kind of it, it's that uh, it's that like ethereal humanness that we're all trying to understand more of. Yeah. Can't quite put a finger on it. Yeah, well said. Seven of Nine was really great at that, too. Oh, and Voyager. Yeah. 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 Voyager's probably my favorite series of the bunch. Mm-hmm. But for... Voyager is awesome. Yeah, that was a close competition with The Next Generation for me. Yeah. I would just... The only reason I really settled on The Next Generation was because it was the longest... Like, there were the most seasons of it, I think. Well, there was... Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Next Generation all had the same seven seasons. Really? Yeah. Oh, I felt like... But it felt... Yeah. There might have been more episodes overall, because right. it wasn't always, like, guaranteed 22, 24, or 26 episodes. So, yeah. Um... Yeah, I can hear that. I mean, well, anyway, I'll explore Voyager more later in another episode. Uh, but I thought this was really interesting to get 
your ladies' takes on on Star Trek. I think that that's phenomenal, and uh, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's great to have you people in my life that also appreciate this as much as I do, uh, because it it is. I think I think Ellen, you were hitting at it. Stephanie, you hit at it. I mean, this is it's an exploration of the human condition, you know, and that's, that's really, that's what great science fiction does, but that's definitely what Star Trek does is that it explores who we are and what we can be. And, uh, and, and that doesn't happen too often. Mm. So I'm glad that it's done in an entertaining way and it's been doing it for decades. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having us on. This is so much fun. Yeah. 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 No, we'll do something more like this again. It's Let's always... rewind to 2014. <laughs> Woo, here we go. <laughs> it's been four years already. Set that way back machine for 2014. Here it is. My sovereign top eight of the top eight next generation episodes of Star Trek. I'll see you on the other side. And, uh, Accessing Agent Files Brian Sovereign Early 21st Century Anarchist Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government Helping usher in an incredible time Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side? and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. The man of tomorrow, the Golden Stallion, here for another great special for Sovereign Tech. And this is one that, honestly, I teased and had been much requested by email, via social media, uh, all over the place. Because if you remember, a week or two ago, I had done a original Star Trek, the original series top eight special. And I had teased, I said, well, you know, maybe I'll do a next generation one. I could do one for every, uh, you know, Star Trek show that's, that's been out there. And so many people said, please do the next generation one. So I am here to do it. Now, 
if, uh, you know, if you want me to do the other ones like D space nine and Voyager and enterprise, I love enterprise, even though if I did a top eight for enterprise, uh, most of that would be the fourth season <laughs> because that was just so rock solid. Um, but anyway, if you want me to do that, you know, please do let me know. You can let me know in the show notes or, you know, you can comment on the sound on SoundCloud at SovereignTech.com uh, and you can let me know that way. Or, of course, you can email me, Brian at ZomiaOfflineGames.com or, uh, you know, via Google Plus or, or Twitter. You get in touch with me however you want and, uh, you know, and, and just let me know what you're interested in. And I've got other specials coming up. There's plenty of top eights. I can do top eights for the next, you know, for the rest of my lifetime, uh, which granted is going to be hundreds of years. So, you know, looking forward to that. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I could do top eights forever. But I've got other specials lined up. We've got a Disney special that's been highly uh, requested, as well as a special about the movie 2001 which is pretty timely since there is a 3001 uh, miniseries getting made for television, as I understand it. Uh, something else I want before we get into the content for this show, uh, something I want to run past you as well is, you know, last week uh, over the during over the holidays, which uh, I did a bit of traveling and boy, there was a wonderful snowstorm. The Northeast New England was stunning as only New England can be. Uh, and it's true. I mean, you know, one place is, you know, no place is like the other on this planet. Uh, that is one of the true forms of, of rarity and scarcity that we have. And uh, boy, New England is still in my opinion. And I have traveled the world. I have lost, really have lost count very much of, of all the countries I've visited. Um, and nothing beats new England. <laughs> it's just, it, it, as far as beauty goes, I mean, yes, there's ways that other countries, you know, beat the U S and by a long shot, but that's besides the point. So anyway, got to travel through beautiful new England, but while I was doing that, the trailer, a whole slew of trailers have come out recently for the coming year. Uh, and boy, it's just like the 1990s are coming back. I mean, there's uh what is it? There's a, or not a reboot of reboot, but I'm but the the popular CGI cartoon reboot is getting a sequel series. Apparently, uh, we've got a new Terminator movie coming out, which I saw the trailer for that looked incredible. Terminator Genesis uh, and the name, the, the word Genesis is spelled in a very funny way. Uh, there, there's, uh, you know, Jurassic World, whole slew of I mean, you really your 90s are coming back, folks. <laughs> and myself, I couldn't be happier. That's just fine and dandy with me. Um, but anyway, the trailer for Star Wars, uh, The Force Awakens, it was released, you know, a little teaser. And uh, I thought it was, by and large, incredible. And I wanted to do earlier this week, I wanted to just do a, I was going to call it like maybe a sovereign tech quickie where I just, you know, for 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, I just talked about, you know, some little topic. And just released it as, you know, I mean, and, and they wouldn't have like a specific schedule, like uh, every regular episode of Sovereign Tech, every official episode comes out on uh, the Saturday of every week. And, uh, you know, but I, and of course, usually I release a special, but I thought it would have been fun to do a little Star Wars quickie or you know a, a Sovereign Tech quickie. And in this case, I would have talked about Star Wars. So but I ended up not doing it. Uh, and I will talk briefly about that, uh, that that trailer here. Um, before we get into the, the next generation top eight, cause I don't have a whole lot to say. Well, I do have a lot to say about the trailer, but I'm not going to go into that much depth. Um, so anyway, but if you like the idea of me doing like little quick, you know, 10 minute shots or maybe even five minutes, I mean, it could be practically nothing, you know, kind of sovereign tech quickies or whatever, uh, do let me know. 
If it's not something people are interested in, I won't bother doing it, <laughs> okay? Uh, because, I mean, I can just, you know, talk to myself or I can talk to the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy, who is open to any subject, any time, which you can't ask for a better relationship than that. Uh, no judgments around, you know? So anyway, um, so Star Wars Force Awakens trailer, Star Wars Episode 7, Star Wars 7, uh, the trailer is was really exciting. Um, there wasn't a whole lot revealed. You don't get much. Uh, but with the really the, the the scenes, the things you do get to see were so tantalizing. I mean, they they just. Yeah, cream in my pants. I, I don't mind saying it. Uh, and admittedly, when probably the best moment of it. Okay, and really, if you haven't seen this trailer yet, uh, there's no you have no excuse Uh, (laughs) when the X-Wings, when these updated X-Wings are skimming on the water, they're doing a little uh, what the Mimbari would call skin dancing on the water. Oh, man. Woo. (laughs) If it didn't have that, I might have felt that the that the whole thing was, yeah, you know, a little underwhelming. But just seeing those X-Wings on the water, I was like, okay, there we go. We're trying something new for once, which, of course, J.J. Abrams will often do. Just like it was really exciting that uh, in in the his first Star Trek movie that he made, Star Trek 11 or Star Trek, uh, you know, the, the one that takes place in the alternative universe um, that has little to do with what we're talking about here other than. Yeah, you know, that it's an alternative universe of it, uh, you know, where he has, you know, Kirk and and Sulu, uh, you know, and others doing a, kind of a, a, an orbital skydive. Not that that was new for Star Trek, because that was actually in Star Trek Generations, the first next generation movie. There was a plan to have Captain Kirk do an orbital skydive. And you can see actual footage of this uh, kind of a deleted scene of sorts being done. So it's not like Abrams came up with something new, but he's willing to to have like to, you know, really put in something for fresh that you've never seen in a universe before. And so seeing that with Star Wars, seeing those X-Wings skimming the water, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, seeing the Millennium Falcon and hearing John Williams score go was great. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people may not realize this, but that, there was some new music in that minute and a half or however long that was. Uh, there was some new John Williams scoring in there. Uh, so there's some new Star Wars music to be gleaned. And it's, you know, uh, it's in the background, <laughs> but it, it sounded good, right? Uh, the stormtroopers lined up to kind of like jump out the back of, of some kind of transport, you know, maybe a Lambda class shuttle or something. That was uh, that was pretty cool. Of course, these this movie is taking place 30 years after Return of the Jedi. So I would hope there's still well, a lot of things still kind of look the same. TIE fighters still look the same. So maybe the Lambda class shuttles look the same regardless. Uh, that that was cool. And the one thing that got a whole ton of heat and I understand the heat is the lightsaber that this character wearing triple black uh, carries and one that some people have theorized that that's actually Luke Skywalker, you know, or that it's just some Sith character, whatever. We're not entirely certain, uh, who that is. And, uh, this lightsaber has, it looks kind of like a, a claymore, a Scottish claymore, not a claymore like one would use in the army where, you know, it, it sends off a bunch of projectiles. Uh, and so it looks like a claymore sword where it has a cross guard. Okay, now a bunch of people freaked out and said that it looks that it's a terrible design. It looks absolutely ridiculous. And I agree that that all the reasons people say that this thing looks ridiculous, the fact that the 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 cross guard is, you know, a T shape. And so, you know, if uh, if a lightsaber, another lightsaber came down on it, 
you know, at just the right angle, it could cut off the T and, uh, you know, the metal and thus the, um, you know, thus the, the, the whole thing was, was worthless, uh, you know, or the, uh, the, the cross guards worthless, the pommel, whatever you want to call that. I guess it wouldn't be a pommel, but anyway, I'm, I'm a little rusty on my swordsmanship. So anyway, I get all that. And the idea that, oh, you know, with this, with this, this light, you know, ejecting from it, we're operating as a cross guard is going to just like sever off somebody's fingers and all this stuff. I get it. But, uh, and, and they're all valid points, but the point that I made about this, and I tried to share it on social media, the point I made is that if you read like some of the early star Wars, um, uh, there, there was a comic book series called Star Wars Tales where they kind of and the, these are some of the best. They're not canon. They weren't really canon back when they were made in the 90s. OK, but Dark Horse Comics did Star Wars Tales. Uh, and in the first 20, there was some degree of like an interweaving story going on. And these were sort of like what Marvel would do and DC would do with like with What If or Elseworlds. It's kind of the same idea. And in these, which, by the way, I think it was Star Wars Tales. Boy, I want to say it was number nine where Vader takes on uh, Darth Maul. Epic fucking comic book. I don't care if it's canon or not. That was a story that deserved to be told. So there's great stuff in this. Uh, I mean, it, fucking amazing. There's this great point where Maul and Vader are fighting. I'm getting off topic, but where Maul and Vader are fighting. And Maul's taunting Darth Vader, saying, you know, you don't have enough hate in you to beat me. I am pure hate. And obviously, this is like a clone of Darth Maul. And but eventually Vader does beat him. And, you know, Maul just says to him, it's like, what could you possibly hate so much that you could defeat me? And Vader says, myself. Oh, honey. Oh, man. Talk about a geekasm. Amazing. Anyway. So also some of the cool things that were done in these comics in Star Wars Tales was uh, you find out that and this was done in some other books, too, but uh, or some other works. But you find out Boba Fett actually has a lightsaber. Uh, he's not a force user at all, but he has a lightsaber. And this fact that Boba Fett has a lightsaber is a really big deal. In fact, it shocks people, including Vader himself, because the thing is, is that Boba Fett and I haven't seen, look, I've, I read all the geek, you know, Star Wars Underworld, Force.net, Kotaku, you know, I read all this shit and I haven't seen anybody bring this point up. So I'm happy that I'm the one that gets to bring it up. That's what I get for being the king of the nerds at one point in my life. Really? I really was. Anyway, um, you know, so Boba Fett has, has this lightsaber and everybody thinks it's so incredible because a normal person, a non-force user, a mundane is not supposed to be able to handle a lightsaber because it's so light as in, in weight, it's so lightweight uh, that, you know, it's just far too dangerous and it's such a precision weapon. And part of its practicality in usage is like when you see in return of the Jedi and you, or, you know, wherever, and you see Luke Skywalker, you know, blocking blaster bolts, an average person can't do that because he doesn't see because with the force, you can kind of see what's coming just moments before it happens to a degree. And so or you can slow time down, you know, you can slow your perception down. And so it becomes a very practical weapon in a world full of blasters, because otherwise it's just stupid to bring a knife to a gunfight. So that's why it's so weird that Boba Fett is really good with a lightsaber, but it raises the point that uh, lightsabers in and of themselves, you know, are 
meant to be handled by somebody who is seeing what's coming next. So the question and and that actually has sort of extra sensory ability to handle the weapon. So the idea that the weapon in and of itself is dangerous to handle is actually the point. You know, the fact that your fingers could potentially get caught off by the cross guard. That's actually the point. It's meant to be dangerous for anybody else other than a force trained person to use. See, and uh, also the fact that, I mean, equally with that ability that you kind of see what's happening next to some degree or, you know, you have your slowing perception, you name it. Uh, you would also see if that strike was coming down to, you know, to knock off the, the metal part of the, of the cross guard on your Claymore type lightsaber. So I I don't mind it at all. Uh, a lot of people freak out, you know, what, how, why do they always have to come up with a new lightsaber for this shit? Uh, no, I think it's cool. I think that it's meant to be like when Exar Kun in Tales of the Jedi originally had this was long, you know, a few years before Darth Maul had a double bladed lightsaber. Uh, when when Exar Kun, you know, first introduces the double bladed lightsaber, it was meant to shock. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and that's the point. That's why these things have that's why these are weird, you know, because it's part of the whole fear tactic that the Sith use. Uh, that's why the Jedi don't generally use this sort of thing, because they're not interested in inflicting fear or, you know, enticing fear or whatever. And uh, so I think it makes just fine sense. Uh, the, the reasons that people are knocking it are totally logical. I get it. But uh, you got to You got to look into why they design these things the way they design them. That being the Sith, don't look at it, you know, from a, a design perspective, uh, you know, a, a normal design perspective, a realistic design perspective. Look at it from the perspective of a force user. And I think the lightsaber makes perfect sense. So anyway, the trailer was amazing. That was great. I spent way too much time talking about that. I want to get into the next generation. I want to talk some Star Trek. OK, enough Star Wars. <laughs> Let's talk Star Trek. Um, so the next generation, let, we're, let's get right into it. And again, do let me know if you are interested in me doing like kind of sovereign tech quickies, you know, little 10 minute clips, uh, at any given time that I feel a need to do them. All right. So, um, yeah, boy, the next generation of Star Trek, uh, formative for me, incredibly formative for me. Uh, I mean, really, <laughs> this is a show that ran from 1987 to 1994. Um, I watched it. I remember when Encounter at Farpoint, the very first episode aired, I was six years old, uh, but I remember it very, very well when that I, I remember watching the first season. I remember buying the the first season toys, uh, which there were next generation toys, which are very different from the, the bulk of the like Playmate style toys that people remember from Star Trek. Uh, the, the next generation toys that were released worked really well with my G.I. Joe collection because they were more or less, you know, your three and three quarters uh, inch size figures. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was just gaga from the beginning. <laughs> of the next generation. Now I had seen as you've, if you listened to the last star Trek top eight that I did about the original series, I knew about star Trek even before then. Uh, you know, I, I started off, albeit at an exceptionally young age, I started off with captain Kirk. Uh, but you know, I was certainly along for the whole seven year ride, uh, with, um, you know, with, with captain Picard and crew in the next generation. And I want to, <laughs> You know, I guess I should get this out of the way. I mean, one of the big things with the next generation was a lot of people always ask the question, who's better, Kirk or Picard? Uh, I get it. You know, Picard's awesome. I mean, he, he's, you know, who else could even come close to, to, to matching William Shatner? But uh, the original series still stands pretty tall for me. I, I, I think I definitely know the original series 
like far better. I've watched it far more than I've watched uh, the next generation. Uh, and that goes for the, the movies as well. Even though the next generation movies are, are top notch. Uh, first contact is an amazing film. Uh, generations was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> uh, insurrection was amazing. I love insurrection. That's a movie that does not get its due. That is a fantastic movie. Uh, I loved nemesis. I thought Nemesis was an awesome movie. I really wish they would have continued on because the writers of Star Trek uh, of Star Trek Nemesis, which was the last next generation film, they had a, um, you know, they had like a, a plan of what to do if Nemesis was like really successful in theaters of where they wanted to go with Star Trek after the fact. And I God, I wish they could have done it. Uh, because I thought that was really cool. I love the Argo. I thought the Argo was an awesome vehicle. I mean, just lots of lots of really cool things they did in that. Um, so anyway, but we're more talking about the, uh, you know, more talking about the, the television series. So yeah, seven years, uh, the, the next generation, a lot of, to boil it down to a top eight is near impossible. Uh, it really is. And so I'm definitely shooting for episodes perhaps that are not just like I did with the original series. And like, I like, it's one of the things I like doing about the top eight. Okay. Is because I think there's things that don't get enough credit out there when IO nine or whatever bullshit, you know, nerd blog out there, uh, you know, does a list of the greatest episodes. They always go for the ones that like everybody knows it's like, well, no shit. But what about those gems? What about those rarities? You know, what about like when you're talking about hair metal, what about trickster? You know, I mean, what a band or danger, danger. But anyway, <laughs> but with Star Trek, the next generation. So, you know, best of both worlds is not on my list here with the next generation. I am totally with you. It is the best episode of the of, you know, of course, it's two parter, but it is the best of the bunch of the next generation. I agree. I agree. <laughs> As Ernie Hancock would say. OK, but. <laughs> But what I'm telling you is, is that I don't want to get into those. I want to talk about the ones that most people just don't talk about. And so we're going to go through eight of them. They are in no particular order. Uh, these are maybe, maybe this would be more accurately, not a top eight, but the eight that you missed. But some of these are really, you know, of the best. Now, just, just a little bit more about the next generation itself. Of course, this takes place. Uh, approximately a hundred years later than the original series. That's why it's the next generation of Star Trek. And it is very much a different world, uh, or a different, uh, federation, a different Starfleet. It's not so cowboy, as some would say. And the galaxy is not so wild west, uh, anymore. And a lot of what people know of Star Trek four didn't really get hammered down, didn't really get laid down and like put into kind of code and rule. Until the next generation, uh, like one of the things, and in fact, uh, boy, I talk about a lot of email, uh, last, last week's or this past week's episode of sovereign tech episode one Oh one, a lot of people emails about my conversation about the Inca and about money. That conversation is going to continue, uh, in the, in episode one Oh two of sovereign tech. So do keep a, keep a listen for, for that. Um, and the next generation is one of those areas where it is made very clear as to where in the original series, there seems to be some degree of money uh, or that they get paychecks of a sort. Like there's quotes often that I'll bet a week's wage or something like that. Uh, and, and when they go to star bases or whatever, that kind of thing occurs, too. As well as with Deep Space Nine, you have gold press latinum, which is a big deal. So money is still part of the part of the deal. But in the next generation, there really is no money. And it's very blatantly made. Uh, that case is really blatantly made that, that that's just not the case anymore. 
Okay. And part of that is due to, you know, I mean, it's, it's a post scarcity world where there's replicators and, you know, blah, 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 you, you know, all, all these various technologies that allows for that. Um, and we're going to, you know, I mean, one of the easy episodes I could start talking about with the next generation is um is uh, it's the last episode of the first season the neutral zone is the name of the episode and in this there is a point where a guy that could be argued to be a capitalist from the 21st century gets brought into the 24th century where the next generation takes place and he gets into a degree of an argument with captain picard and captain picard now this episode is not in my top eight but um but you know captain picard brings up this point that we are not obsessed with the accumulation of things anymore. We are out of our infancy. And so that, that, that gives you kind of a, a heads up as to what life in the 24th century uh, is like. And so I'm going to talk about that more in episode 102 of, of Sovereign Tech. So do, do keep a listen for that, because I think there is a lot to be said. And a lot of people emailed me and said, Hey, you didn't really go into X. You didn't go into this. Like you didn't say what exactly, like in my 2099 special, what was, uh, you know, what exactly was the economy on Osiris one? Um, and I will, I will lay all of that out and I will describe, uh, some alternative economies that we really only got to brush on in episode 101 uh, that that we can talk about. So anyway, uh, and the next generation might come up in that conversation in that episode. Um, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, this is when, when you talk about the next generation more so than the original series, we're talking about a, a federation, a Starfleet that has really got its act together. It's really like it is the boss, you know, <laughs> it is the, the big stuff in the galaxy and it's not really afraid of anything except for, well, we'll, uh, we'll get in, we'll get into that with a couple of these episodes. So the first one, let's break into it. The first episode from the next generation that's on our top eight is from the first season. And this episode is called conspiracy. Now I had posted that I was going to do a next generation special and this, I was shocked at this because this is one of my, this is easily one of the best episodes in the next generation. Um, but it made a lot of other people's lists too. But in most, when I used to go to conventions and believe me, I used to go to a shit ton of conventions. Nobody really talked about this episode. Nobody really cared. Uh, but I think this is really, this is an episode that actually the next generation dropped the ball. Uh, they really dropped the ball on this one, uh, because it's set up. So, I mean, D space nine would kind of follow in its footsteps, uh, with the various storyline, but all right, let's What's the storyline storyline is you find out that there is this kind of this parasitic race, not unlike the Goa'uld in, uh, in Stargate SG one, uh, there's this parasitic race that is, uh, is infiltrating Starfleet, you know, right up to the Admiralty and they are trying to get the enterprise to be a part of this. And like literally Picard has to have a secret meeting with other Starfleet captains, uh, about what's going on. And it's, uh, I mean, it's really serious this, this, this episode. And I'm not saying overall that like the, you know, the lines in the show, you know, that the script writing was that grand or that the acting was so top notch, but just the fact that this was really dark for star Trek, uh, any star Trek. And in fact, it, it may be just shy other than a Borg episode. It may be star Trek's darkest hour. Uh, <laughs> because here it is Starfleet. You find out, Hey, you know, there's, there's some crazy shit going on back home in San Francisco. 
Okay. You know, there's an alien species that, you know, this, this parasitic species that may be taking things over. Now, of course, you know, their plans get thwarted and whatever. Um, Picard and Riker save the day in this very, you know, you get to see some pretty horrendous special effects, which is pretty rare for, for the next generation, because by and large, the effects still hold up very well to this day. Um, and uh, actually, <laughs> the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I, during our uh, little Thanksgiving vacation, uh, we or you know, holiday vacation there, we actually uh, watched some Next Generation at that time. Not not any of, or maybe one of these episodes, but not not all these episodes. But uh, just there was BBC America. I guess we don't have a TV, and where we were did, and so it came on, and uh, and and they were having a kind of a holiday marathon of it, and so we got to catch some of this. But anyway, conspiracy. Uh, this episode. So the effects in it, you know, like you get to when when Picard and Riker save the day, you get to see some pretty rough effects. But whatever. Forget it, because the story's amazing. And so what happens at the end of this episode, OK, is, of course, you know, they, they stop these parasites. They apparently wipe them out. But at the very last. This is weird because Star Trek rarely ends. If it's not a two parter, it rarely ends with a cliffhanger. But this one does. And the cliffhanger, uh, and it, this wasn't the season finale, like I mentioned the episode before, the neutral zone, that was. And th- it ends off with just like somebody sends off a signal to wherever these parasites come from. And you just get this shot, the, the parting shot of a space field, and you hear like, you know, you know, just like the signal going out uh, that that was essentially saying, hey, uh, the rest of you, you know, parasites we're, we've taken over in the Alpha Quadrant. Come here. And so, but this is where they drop the ball because you have this incredible conspiratorial storyline. You know, the very heart of Starfleet's in trouble. Really drastic stuff that you just never, you rarely ever get, other than Deep Space Nine with, um, you know, with, with uh, the Dominion and the shapeshifters. You never get that. Uh, you really never get that, uh, or the, ch- the changelings, whatever, not the changeling <laughs> Odo's race. You get, um, you, you know, you never get that. where like Starfleet's really in fucking trouble here. And so, but the signal goes out, but you never get another story about it. You know, like what happens when these parasites, the rest of these parasites that got signaled to come in to take over. Uh, you know, and what they did is they would actually, again, they're parasites. They would take over a person's body. Like they wanted they, this admiral in the episode conspiracy wanted to give one to Picard and take over Picard. And it just, it, it doesn't happen. They, they never finish up. It, it's an awesome storyline. It would have made one of the movies could have done it. And I bet that would have been the greatest Star Trek movie in history. Might've even beaten the motion picture, which by the way, a lot of people said they wanted to catch Star Trek, the motion picture, Star Trek one, the first one from 79 after I had recommended it. I'm honored. Thank you. Make sure you catch the director's cut that was made in the early aughts because they, they did a good job. Robert Wise was there and they did a great job with uh, updating a lot of the effects and adding in a bunch of stuff. Uh, but anyway, so if they just took conspiracy, if they finally, you know, d- did a sequel to the episode, uh, boy, that would have been something not unlike how Space Seed in the original series ended up with Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Uh, th- this was ripe for the picking and they never did it. And what a loss. What a loss. Maybe there's a novel 
Um, I used to be able to read all of these Star Trek novels, as in literally all of them. Uh, but it, it got to the point where they were doing like at, at points they were doing more than once a month. And then there was like five Star Trek series and you'd have to read five of these a month. And I I lost track. So maybe at some point they did a uh, they they ended in a book. They must they did a parasite or they did a sequel to this to the uh, conspiracy where the parasites uh, come back, you know, come back or come home or whatever. Uh, so it was just a mist. It was a really dark series uh, or dark hour of Star Trek. There's nothing else like it out there, really. Uh, and it, it it's really stands tall as, as one of the best uh, in, in next generation history. And that's saying something when there's so many in seven years, there are so many great. I mean, there's over a hundred some odd episodes of the next generation. Uh, I mean, there's so many great hours for, for this one, especially in the first season to get it so good. Uh, that's something. And it's, just, you know, that's the thing, too. Like the first season of The Next Generation, a lot of people don't even know a lot of the episodes from it uh, because, you know, some to some degree, they were rehashing ideas from the original series. Um, and also, of course, you know, the entire premise of the next generation was rehashing uh, Star Trek phase two, which originally, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, but the motion picture of Star Trek was not supposed to be uh, a motion picture. It's only it only became a movie. Star Trek only became a movie series because Star Wars was so fucking huge in 77. Before then, Paramount was actually going to make a tel- a fourth television network. At the time, you had CBS, NBC and ABC, and they were going to make a fourth television network. Now, ironically, Paramount would do that, you know, 20, 30 years later with UPN which would be the fourth you know, network. And that eventually, of course, became CW. But uh, so Star Trek phase two had the same thing and they weren't going to have the character of Spock. And so they created another Vulcan character who was trying to be human. Now that that and his name was Zahn, I think that character ended up morphing into data. So a lot of ideas from the original series were definitely transfigured into uh, the next generation in the first season, uh, like the naked now, which was uh, a rehash of the naked time, which was on our, our top eight from, from the original series. And it was definitely a rehash. So there was a lot of rehashing of original series ideas and plans in the next generation. And so the first season kind of falls in line with that and it doesn't really find its own footing, but at the same time, because it was trying to find its footing, it would do very risky episodes that you really didn't get anywhere else. In fact, like when Tasha Yar dies in the first season. That's not on our top eight. That episode isn't there, but when Tasha Yar dies, that's huge for a major star Trek cast member, not a red shirt though. Granted, she was a security officer <laughs> for a major, you know, character to die in a television show. Fuck it. Being star Trek in a television show. That's nuts. So, you know, the, the first season of the next generation get, has a bad rap. Uh, for being perhaps cheesy, not having its footing, copying the original series, whatever. But no, they tried some really risky stuff uh, with with that. And uh, and some of the best episodes ever really uh, sit in in the first season, including the other one I mentioned before. Uh, the Neutral Zone is a is a really interesting episode to to consider. Um, but anyway, so that's uh, that's conspiracy. And uh, I definitely recommend checking that one out. A, a great, great storyline. Uh, but let's get into the next episode. And the next one's from the, the second season. 
Uh, now, the second season, actually a couple of episodes on this list are from the second season. The second season is another one that kind of gets a bad rap because, again, it falls under the same thing that season one had the problem with, where people were saying, oh, it hasn't found its footing. Oh, it's still trying to be like, uh, you know, like the original series. Oh, the effects aren't up to snuff. Uh, you know, whatever. And also, Dr. Crusher ends up leaving in the second season, which for a lot of people is kind of a turnoff when Gates McFadden wasn't on the show uh, for an entire year. And, uh, you know, they had Dr. Pulaski on instead of Dr. Crusher. Now, I thought Dr. Pulaski was just fine. Uh, and, you know, she, she actually brought a pretty interesting kind of flavor to the show. Her interactions with Data in particular were interesting, or as she originally calls him, Data. <laughs> and then there's the complaint, uh, you know, it's like, my name's Data. Well, no, it's, you know, what's, it, what's the difference if I say it's Data or Data? And he says, well, one's my name, the other is not. <laughs> you know, so it allowed for a lot of really interesting stuff to have, um, you know, Dr. Pulaski on. But, Anyway, uh, so you have this episode in this episode in particular. In fact, I think the line I just quoted is from this episode. This episode is one of the ones that I'm conceding putting in that is regularly recognized as one of Star Trek's finest hours. Uh, you know, one of the best episodes of the next generation. And that is the measure of a man. And this episode is shockingly, as far as its base plot is shockingly incredibly unoriginal. Uh, it is court drama. It, it is really Star Trek court drama. Not that Star Trek is, uh, you know, new to that. That had been done a couple times in the original series, most notably the two-parter episodes, The Menagerie. Uh, but anyway, th this is a court drama, and the court drama is about the fact is Starfleet needs to come up with a ruling on whether or not Data, the android, is alive if he is life if he has rights and it's a it's a pretty epic episode uh, you know and and I, the other thing i love about it is you know not a violent episode at all but it says so much more and it, it is so highly regarded uh in fan in star trek fandom uh because you know it's just it's that good of a story and it's pretty epic and really the only the, the major point to, to bring about it, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about the plot. Like, it, it's pretty sad. It's amazing how sad you feel. If you've been watching every episode of The Next Generation up until this point, you really get the sense that Commander Data, or Mr. Data, who is an android, uh, that he's pretty invincible. Like, there's a million times where everything goes wrong, and, and you know, and the humans and whatever other, you know, carbon-based life forms uh, can't, can't make it, and Data saves the day. And so Data, especially for young people, including myself, was very much a hero, much like Mr. Spock was, I think, in the, in the same light for the original series. And Data, in one point in this episode, to prove, because Commander Riker is the opposition uh, and, you know, the opposing council or whatever. And he has to he has to prove that data he is ordered by Starfleet to prove that data is uh, not a sentient being or that he does not have rights. And uh, that's to say nothing of how I feel about rights. That's not the point here. We're we're talking within the medium of Star Trek. And there's a point where Riker turns off data. Like just hits a switch and data is just falls over. And I remember like little kid, you know, I'm like seven, eight years old and I start welling up 
Like, this is not cool, <laughs> you know, that that happened. Uh, and, and that's, that's a, you know, real, uh, you know, that definitely gets you, you, f- the, f- the feels going, uh, when you watch it. And, uh, th- that's an amazing moment. But when it really hits is Picard gives this incredible speech where he's, you know, he goes on to say that, you know, like define life for me. And he, there's like, there's, there's three criteria, uh, and he goes down the three criteria with the guy that's wanting to study data. And that's, that's why they're doing this whole thing is because, uh, Starfleet wants to make more datas, but they'd have to disassemble data to make it more. And so they talk to this guy who wants to go through this, who wants to make an army of datas and all this stuff. And, you know, you know, they, they go down, um, you know, are you aware? Are you self-aware? Are you aware of where you are? And so data, of course, answers where he is and what he's going through. So he's aware. Then the second criteria uh, is something to the effect of, you know, is there more than one? And so he says, well, you're proposing to make an army of them. At what point does that not become a race? And at what point, you know, and then, uh, you know, then there's the third criteria. You know, what if he is intelligent, you know, in, in just the slightest degree? What does that mean? And then if you have an army of them, how is that not slavery? He just, I mean, it's this epic speech. You can find it on YouTube. Just look up measure of a man. Believe me, it's going to come up as the first hit because a lot of people love this. And, you know, then, then Picard goes into the big deal of, you know, the mission of Starfleet is part of the mission of Starfleet is to find new life forms. And he just says, and there it sits and points at data. And it's really epic. And it's definitely something that is colored, admittedly, throughout my entire life, uh, my perceptions of what is life. Uh, not, uh, you know, anyone that's listened to Sovereign Tech for a while uh, should be decently aware. In fact, I even did, boy, talk about specials. It was the, the maybe the first or second special I ever did. I think it was the first, which was about dolphins, because I am of the uh, educated opinion, as in I feel I have facts behind this opinion that uh, dolphins are non-human persons. And certainly I, I have to say that measure of a man, that episode of the next generation really, uh, you know, ha- had an impact on has again, continues to have an impact on me on what we define as life and how do we treat such things? So it's a powerful episode to watch. Uh, and you actually, by and large, you don't have to know anything about Star Trek to, to really appreciate its mes- message and, and what it has to say. Uh, something I talked about, in fact, it might have been my very first appearance on pork therapy. I talked about this. Um, I had, we, we were talking about, you know, artificial intelligence and whichever. And actually, in this week's episode, in episode 102 of Sovereign Tech, we're going to talk more about AI. Um, but. You know, my the question I raised is that what happens when humans, perhaps inadvertently, program something, but then suddenly it does something either against or it does something beyond its programming, that being, a, you know, a piece of software or some hardware. What happens then? Because if it if it's acting of its own volition, does that become life and how do we treat it? And uh, this episode is certainly a great commentary on that. But anyway, we can save the talk about AI for many, many, many other episodes of Sovereign Tech, because it is something that is definitely hot on the presses these days. So anyway, Measure of a Man, a great episode, uh, lots to think about. And uh, that that's certainly an easy one. Uh, but now the next episode is also in the second season, and this is Peak performance. 
This one, a lot of people might not know, but it is definitely one of my one of my favorites uh, because it's an underdog story. And what it is, is that there is um, a guy called Kilrami, who is, you know, an, al- an alien species that want, is, you know, testing uh, various, you know, testing Starfleet. His race is known for being, you know, very, uh, you know, incredibly strategic, uh, strategically minded. Some of the best strategists in the, uh, you know, in the known galaxy. And they are testing Picard and Riker. And in this Riker, they, they do a simulated attack and they give Riker uh, an old uh, constellation class. Sorry, folks, I do this without notes. Okay, <laughs> A constellation class starship, which is just like the stargazer that Captain Picard commanded previously to the Enterprise. Um, and this constellation class ship is just, it's in shambles. It's the Hathaway, the USS Hathaway. It's really in rough shape. And, um, you know, he, the point is, is that it, you have to, you know, they, they want to test Riker to see how he handles being in a inferior position. Okay. If you don't have all the power that the galaxy class starship offers, which at the time is arguably the most powerful starship in the fleet, or at least starship class, the galaxy class, uh, you know, how can you handle it? And, uh, and that's the beauty of it is like just this constant innovation and like coming up with all these little tricks. Uh, in fact, there's a great point where, cause you know, uh, or Riker has to choose his crew for this, you know, simulation and he chooses, uh, Worf. And he says to Worf, he's like, what do you do when you're outmanned, outgunned, you know, (laughs) and, uh, you know, what do you have left? And Worf gets up just with this, you know, big smile and says, guile. (laughs) And Riker's just like, come on, you know, join me. (laughs) It's so good. Uh, Because what, what ends up happening is there's, you know, this huge mishap and the Ferengi show up. Uh, and, uh, because what they figure out is they figure out a way to trick the sensors of the enterprise. This is during the simulation before the Ferengi appear, they trick the, simu- uh, the simulation into the enterprise thinking that a Romulan warbird is attacking and it's actually not, but because of that, they ignore the Hathaway and then the Hathaway swoops in and starts firing off, of course, simulated phaser shots, and it was, you know, just all this really clever, like, you know, definitely brains over brawn, even at the starship level. Uh, that is so much fun to see in Star Trek. It's really great. But anyway, then an actual Ferengi ship appears and but. Because of the the initial trick with the Romulan Warbird, Picard thinks it's just another trick, and it's not. And so, but then the Ferengi open fire, disable the shields, and all this stuff, and becomes this big mess. And one of the interesting things is that the Hathaway that Riker's commanding, one, one of the things that they made sure it didn't have is it didn't have the ability to escape. And so it didn't have warp power. But there's this little trick that Wesley Crusher pulls off by grabbing a, a school experiment of his that they actually get figure out a way to give it a quick one second warp jump. And, <laughs> and so they end up using it to they, they do what's called the Picard maneuver, more or less. Um, and they use it to to trick the uh, which Picard maneuver. Look that up. Uh, that, that's an interesting trick where uh, a ship makes it look like there's more than one ship around or whatever. Or no, no, they didn't do the Picard maneuver. I'm sorry. What they did was they kind of did the Picard maneuver. They actually they they warped out after a photon torpedo shot to the Hathaway to make it look like the Hathaway was destroyed. 
And it was really like fine precision stuff. There was a chance that everybody would have died when they did it. Um, but uh, anyway, that 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 didn't happen. And uh, they got away. And then the Ferengi just like leave. And uh, and then it, it's all done and done. And then, of course, there's this uh, interesting little subplot of data questioning himself because he loses at a game of stratagema with uh which is this kind of a chess 3d chess like game it's not hyper chess it's different um holograph more like a holographic chess uh against kilrami who is running this whole simulation uh but that that's interesting but that that's besides the point um Though, though there's a clever like solution to it and that is data figures out that the kilrami is playing to win and so if data plays to stalemate to create a stalemate not to win that he actually frustrates Kilrami so much that Kilrami like quits the game and says you're making a mockery of me and runs away and so that that was the the whole message of this episode which is so cool is that rethink your plan don't look at it you know just just really i i hate this phrase but think out of the box you know, get really creative. Use guile. You, <laughs> you know, uh, not the character from Street Fighter 2. You know, do, do just just do shit that you'd never think of before. And maybe even, you know, I don't want to say cheat, but bend the rules or ignore the rules. How about that? Uh, so that that's a fun episode. Peak performance. That's one a lot of people probably don't remember, but uh, uh, definitely top marks on my list. And again, it was second season. That's uh, another season that people uh, often overlook. Now let's get on to the next one. I didn't realize, boy, this is this is another one that's going to end up going over an hour. Um, you know, I didn't realize just how many episodes I have in here that are from season two. Uh, again, an overlooked season, but uh, I hopefully I'm changing that perspective. Uh, in this episode, this is another one where where people this this one gets referenced often, and it's Q Who, uh, because this is the first appearance of the Borg. Now the Borg is a collective. Uh, actually the Borg collective, that's what they, they call their existence more or less. Uh, it is a collective species. It is a, uh, a hybrid, a cybernetic species, you know, part, uh, you know, part organic, part machine and easily, you know, next to species. Well, anyway, there's a, there's another from an alternate dimension there that was introduced in Voyager. There is a species that is actually more powerful than the Borg. But before them, the Borg, by and large, were the most powerful villains uh, in Star Trek. And they're a great villain, like because they they're so terrifying because they speak so much against individuality, like their very existence is anti-individuality, by and large, minus Locutus and the Queen and all that. And uh, so anyway, Q who uh, Q wants to the character Q, which is, uh, you know, well, I guess if you call Q a villain, which I think that's that's a mislabeling. Uh, but if Q is a villain, then, yes, he's the most powerful. The Q continuum, which Q belongs to this race, the Q, they are they are just pretty much, you know, little little more or little less than gods in their ability and their power. Uh, they can do just about anything, seemingly create just about anything. But they are a by and large bored species, uh, not Borg, bored Okay, <laughs> in their existence, because they are so omniscient and omnipresent, as it were. And uh, Q in this episode wants to join Starfleet. He wants to join the the crew of the Enterprise, essentially. And Picard says that's ridiculous. And Q warns him and says, look, you don't understand. You want me on your crew because there are things out there 
far more dangerous or deadly than you've ever experienced before. And, you know, of course, Picard more or less laughs it off and says it's ridiculous. Q gets pissed off at, at Picard's uh, seeming arrogance and whisks the Enterprise, you know, decades away from where it was or like it would take decades for it to get back. You know, so it's so tons of light years away from where from where the Enterprise D uh, originally uh, was. And here they encounter the the Borg. They find the Borg cube and just their weapons can't do anything. It's unstoppable. Uh, you know, it's just really ugly. Like Guinan knows who they, who they, which the character played by Whoopi Goldberg, which uh, she was a, a pretty interesting uh, character. And, you know, she knows who they are. She says they destroyed her race. Uh, they are insanely powerful. You And, you know, she's telling Picard, you have no idea what you're dealing with here. You can't win. And pretty much at the end of it, this is the amazing thing. Now, picture this, that you're not. This is before you saw Best of Both Worlds. OK, you know, Picard admits at the end of this, we can't win. And he tells Q that you're right. And Q is impressed by his humility, blah, 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 saves the day. So, but this was the interesting thing was to see, again, this is another one of those, I don't, I don't consider it as dark an hour as, um, you know, as a conspiracy was with that parasitic species infiltrating Starfleet and, you know, taking over, uh, people. Um, it's not like that, but this is definitely a dark hour for Star Trek. This is where Star Trek was, you know, deadly serious. And it was, it really is impressive to see, I mean, because when you watch the next generation, especially you're only two seasons in the enterprise D the galaxy class starship, it just seems everything about it is so much more powerful and polished, uh, and advanced than what you see in even the star Trek movies of their day, you know, the, of the ship of the enterprise, that captain Kirk's commanding the constitution class, or even the Excelsior class that the captain Sulu would command. And that for some reason was still in use, uh, in the t- later 24th century. So, you know, to, to hear, and, and this is the thing too, is that it really shows a difference between Picard and Kirk, because I don't think you'd ever hear Kirk say, we can't win. I really, I don't think that would ever happen. Uh, and I dare say that Picard would, or that Kirk would have figured out a way to beat the Borg if he was in Picard's place. So that's just theoretical, but, uh, score one. <laughs> score one for the Jew or uh, Captain Kirk. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so it, it's a, you know, it's a decently terrifying episode. You feel things watching Q who that you never really felt in Star Trek before. Uh, not really, in my opinion, uh, b- because, you know, you are just meeting this, you know, this race, this enemy that is so goddamn powerful. No matter what you do, you try all the tricks in the book and nothing works. Uh, yeah, it, it's something. And the only thing that can really save you is, uh, you know, a creature with, or an entity with the power of a veritable God, you know, that, that being Q. Uh, so Q who is, uh, again, top notch episode, uh, of Star Trek. So let's get into God. How many have we done? Oh boy. We've only gone through four. We still got more to go. <laughs> I talked too much. I, I spent too much time talking about Star Wars. My apologies. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, the next one I've got here. This is actually, um, you know, as far as, like I said, I recognize that Best of Both Worlds, which uh, by and large is a sequel to uh, the episode that we were just talking about, you know, Q who, because it has to deal with the Borg and, you know, finally uh, defeating them 
more or less. <laughs> uh, this this episode, oh man, this is my favorite. This has been my favorite episode of Star Trek, and I'm kind of noticing a theme here because I didn't, you know, I do kind of wing these. I don't necessarily come to the table with any any genuine preparation other than the episodes I want to talk about. And uh, and and that goes for any of my top eights. I don't really take I, I don't take notes, folks. <laughs> okay, I just get in front of the microphone and I start talking. But this one, this is an episode. So anyway, what I was saying, the theme I'm, I'm noticing here is I am I'm kind of telling you the scary episodes of the next generation that I'm sort of picking out here. Uh, and I, you know, I don't I'm not a huge fan of horror movies. I mean, I'm not against them. You know, I, I can dig them like Aliens or, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, stuff like that. Uh, but th- yeah, these um yeah, I'm, I'm noticing I'm picking a lot of the scary ones. So because this next episode is from season five. And this is, again, hands down, this is my favorite episode of The Next Generation. Nothing else tops it. Nothing else honestly even comes close. Uh, It is a scary episode, okay? Uh, Not in the same way as, well, kind of scary like Conspiracy was. Not like Q-Who, though. Um, But anyway, what happens, the episode is The Game. That's the name of the episode. And one of the cool things about it, not the scary things, but one of the cool things about it is that Wesley Crusher, and please keep in mind, I'm a teenager at the time, or barely a, te- a preteen, I guess I'd be, you know, I'm very young at the time that this is out, that this is coming out. And so Wesley Crusher is the character that you, as a very young person, can relate to, right? And, you know, and, and even though he acts incredibly mature and he's, you know, this, this genius, and so Wesley Crusher is very much the, the hero of this episode, and he does, he really, you know, steps up his game <laughs> in the game. And so Rikers, this opens up, Rikers on, uh, he's on vacation on this planet, he's on shore leave. And this woman that he's with, uh, you know, of course, Rikers, you know, doing, doing what he does, well, perhaps what he does best, <laughs> he's in bed with a woman, and uh she puts this headset on. It's like, here, you want to try this out? And she puts this headset on him. Looks kind of like Google Glass. And I said this on Sovereign Tech in the past when I first started talking about Google Glass. I said, you know, it reminds me too much of the game from Star Trek The Next Generation. And so, you know, she puts this on him. And then, like, you just, you see all it is is this little headset and, like, these these two little, like, fiber optic nodes that kind of point uh, at your eyes. And so then you see the, those nodes, like, just, like, shoot a little flash onto, onto the, the wearer's eyes because it's just a little thing that goes on your head. And then you can see that this was interesting. This is clever television at the time because then it goes into a first-person perspective. Okay, a point of view, a POV, like in all your favorite porn. It goes into a POV where uh, you're seeing what they're seeing. And Riker starts playing this game where there's like this disc, looks almost like a Tron disc. And he has to put it into this tube. And so he starts playing it. And it's, I guess it totally works off of his brain or whatever, uh, you know, off of his mental commands, however all that works. And he like, he can't stop playing. He's really addicted to it. And so he ends up going back to the Enterprise, shore leaves over, and uh, he makes more copies of this game and he shares it around. And then, you know, suddenly you start to see almost everybody on the Enterprise is wearing this headset, like all the time, even while they're working and they're always playing and everybody's talking about this game. They've become very much all consumed. It's like suddenly everybody started playing Candy Crush on the Enterprise D. And it starts to become disconcerting 
to some like Wesley starts saying, and it's ironic that the young person is the one pointing out to all the adults. Hey, don't you think you're playing video games a little too goddamn much? (laughs) And so, you know, he finds it odd. He's like, you know, I think people are shirking their duties. I think people, you know, they're just, they're constantly playing this game and the game's not even that intriguing. And keep in mind, Wesley's never tried it on because he's, he's really bugged out by this. And uh, he meets a friend, uh, her name, Robin Leffler, and, and she's an, you know, an officer on board the Enterprise. And it's actually uh, played by uh, one of the Judds, uh, Ashley Judd, the youngest of the Judds, which was interesting at the time. You know, Winona and her mother and Winona's mother were very famous country singers, you know, topping the charts. So it was interesting to have a Judd on The Next Generation. Uh, this is back in like 91, 92. And uh, and so, you know, Robin Leffler and and Wesley are trying to, you know, figure out what's going on. And they do find out eventually that this game is actually taking over people's minds and making them susceptible to, uh, you know, it's mind control, you know, brainwashing, whatever. And, and, And they can and this race that and it was you find out it was all a ploy that that this you know the woman that that Riker was sleeping with in the beginning of the episode uh was working for this organization and they planned on spreading this game throughout the entire Starfleet and then that race was going to take over Starfleet so kind of a conspiracy type thing like conspiracy but this one isn't uh isn't what isn't pulled off in in such a scary way perhaps um and so of course halfway through this episode this game obviously wouldn't work on data and so Commander Data, uh, you know, uh, Jordy ends up turning, turning off Data, like we mentioned is possible uh, from Measure of a Man, uh, one of the earlier episodes we mentioned. And, uh, and boy, that, that, of course, anytime Data gets turned off, it freaks you out, you know, as, as a Star Trek fan. Uh, and so that, you know, that occurs. And, uh, <laughs> and like Wesley finds out that Data was, was turned off and that like, actually, he wasn't just turned off his the connections to his neural network were severed and so he sets them to kind of an auto he kind of gets them to an auto repair mode but it's going to take time and within that time uh robin leffler ends up getting you know uh she ends up getting mind controlled you know by the game as well and then there's and this is where it gets kind of scary because here here are all these heroes the command crew the enterprise d of star trek the next generation captain picard dr crusher wesley's that's wesley's mom okay wharf uh, you know, Jordy, everybody is holding Wesley, holding him down onto the captain's chair, lifting up his eyes. Okay. And I mean, and that's, what's so creepy about it is because here, the heroes are really being villains. And I mean, it, it messes with you, you know, and especially if you're a young kid and you're seeing this and you're seeing Wesley get held down, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of transposing yourself onto this. It is not cool. Fortunately, because uh, what they end up do, they do put the the game headset on onto Wesley um, after receiving orders to spread it to this starbase and that starbase to take over the whole Federation. Fortunately, Data gets up and Data saves the day. He has like this flashing thing that that deprograms whatever you know the programming was that the game put on people. And uh, whoo, <laughs> not a moment too soon. I mean, it is a clincher. I mean, uh, you know, really tense episode. Uh, but awesome, awesome ingenuity. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of the, of the enterprise D, you know, as compared to other versions of the enterprise, the enterprise D is so massive, so huge. You really, you get to be, you get to, uh, 
you know, pull off a lot of ingenious moves within it and you get to explore a lot, a lot of areas of it. And then that, that makes for, uh, for great, great drama, great episodes. So the game, uh, yeah, easily my favorite and always something I got to (laughs) admit, you know, when you see something like that, when you're young, you kind of find yourself always looking around for when someone might actually try to pull some shit like that off, you know, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But, uh, the human mind, what a, uh, what a kludgy bit of business. So anyway, uh, that's, uh, boy, how many, we got five episodes in now. Yeah. So that was the game. Uh, the next one I'm going to go into is the chase. And this is from season six. This episode's really cool. Uh, really, really cool. It has a storyline that had kind of been hinted at in the original series and was very, and, and hinted at throughout Star Trek, but was, uh, was a very popular, not so much a popular notion in the nineties, but it was definitely a popular notion in the sixties and seventies due to the likes of Eric Von Daniken and Zachariah Sitchin, more importantly, Sitchin being the far more scholarly of the two. Uh, and the idea is in the chase is that they find, you know, there's this kind of, well, a chase. That's why they call it the chase going on where they're finding out that a lot of different races in the, uh, you know, in the, the alpha quadrant and the beta quadrant, whatever in the galaxy, in the Milky way galaxy, you know, cause that's important to keep in mind is that star Trek really by and large, except for a couple episodes only takes place in the Milky way galaxy. They never leave. They, they never really leave it. You know, it's always in the Alpha Quadrant or the Beta Quadrant or the, you know, Delta and Gamma, dependent upon if it was D-Space 9 or, um, you know, or Voyager. So, but they find out that there's like these, these uh, in the DNA of a bunch of different races, there are these very similar strings of code. And this scientist discovers that more or less, he thinks there's some kind of message encoded in DNA. And... So, you know, but some people, a whole bunch of other, you know, the Romulans get involved, uh, Klingons get involved, whatever, you know, all these different races get involved because some people think that somehow there's this like ancient message put in and that it's a weapon of some kind or that even Starfleet is developing some kind of weapon like bioweapon or something and even researching this. But come to find out what, what, what they find out at the end is that, uh, they they do they do find out that when you combine like all the DNA of these various species within the Milky Way galaxy, you find out that there there is a message, and when they play the message, it actually creates a holographic representation. Now, how all that happens, you know, how a tricorder can pull off transmitting that is you know unbeknownst to me, but hey, it's science fiction, so let's roll with it. And what you see is this kind of you know proto bipedal alien you know, humanoid. And it more or less tells all of these species that are there, uh, you know, Klingons, uh, you know, the Romulans, humans, whoever. And pretty much, you know, tells them that we seeded all of you, you know, we're the start of all of you. We were there at the beginning and, you know, we wanted, we wanted to see, you know, life evolve. We didn't want to be alone in all this. And so the message in the chase, interestingly enough, there, there is kind of a twofold. I think kind of the, the, the larger message it's trying to portray is that we're all connected. We're all kind of the same. And in fact, there's a beautiful point at the end where, uh, where a Romulan commander, I think it's Tomalak and Picard are talking 
And they, they pretty much say, yeah, we're going to keep this under wraps. We're not going to let everybody know about this. But they say to each other, perhaps one day. And then, you know, Picard says one day, meaning that, you know, perhaps one day we can all live in peace because we're really not that different. Uh, and, and that's a pretty awesome message, you know, in and of itself. Um, but, and boy, <laughs> it's certainly one that I wish, uh, people of earth would, would take to heart because, you know, suddenly somebody's completely different just because of an imaginary line, you know, drawn up on a map. Uh, I mean, and they are imaginary, just like the dragons that you would have found on those maps hundreds of years ago. But anyway, you know, that's a pretty powerful message in and of itself. But the interesting thing otherwise is that it is admitting to the ancient astronaut theory, which I don't necessarily subscribe to. Uh, I, you know, I don't believe that aliens seeded life on Earth. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm open to like a degree of panspermia, which is the idea that life traveled here on a comet and just flourished here. Uh, but as far as an intentional thing, like the chase was showing that this proto humanoid species, uh, you know, planted life in all these air in all the, on all these planets. Uh, no, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not game for that, but it does give light to the ancient astronaut theory, which says that that's exactly what happened is that aliens were involved in our evolution. That, that that's why there's just at some points in history, there are just these damned oddities. Now I don't put those oddities and I'm talking about in real history now, not Star Trek. I don't put those oddities onto any aliens. I put them onto humans. Um, you know, if anything, just the simple fact that our generations, our recent generations can't be the only ones that had a Tesla or an Einstein or a Da Vinci. I'm sure there was plenty of those throughout mankind's history. And to think that they would come up with these ingenious things or to think that perhaps they uh, learned from perhaps much older civilizations, not aliens, but older human civilizations, totally open to that. So but the chase is interesting because it does raise those questions. You know, it does talk about that. And it's an area that Star Trek kind of touched on with episodes that had to do with Sargon in the original series uh, and, and some others. But uh, but by and large, it never really went there. So, well, other than actually, uh, maybe, I don't know, you could probably find this on a torn site. Uh, I have a DVD of it. But uh, William Shatner actually did a, uh, a documentary in the late 70s called Mysteries of the Gods, I believe. And it was actually a lot about Eric Von Daniken's work and the ancient astronaut theory in fact there's a very humorous moment where william shatner is holding uh one of the crystal one of the infamous crystal skulls and he's he's just holding it and he says i'm trying to feel the energy of the skull as i stare at it <laughs> so if you can find that it is a, an intriguing watch even though much of what's shown in that documentary uh has been proven to be uh or has more or less, depending on what degree you want to give to or what credence you want to get to very give to various evidence, uh, have been disproven, have been shown to be uh, a hoax. So anyway, um, boy, <laughs> how do we end up talking about William Shatter? So the chase, uh, great episode uh, with a with a good message and uh, it definitely uh, dalliancing with some intriguing theories uh, that that Star Trek uh, rarely would go into. Yeah, in my opinion. So uh, next episode, uh, this would be from I guess we're getting an episode from from almost every. Well, we didn't get episode or season three or four. 
which that's good because most of the only Star Trek anybody knows is from season three and four. So I'm glad I'm not really covering that. So this is from uh, season seven. And this episode is the Pegasus. And the Pegasus has to do with uh, an incident. Uh, an admiral comes on board the Enterprise, Admiral Pressman, who was a former commanding officer of Commander Riker. And he, you know, is sending the Enterprise on this top secret mission. He's with Starfleet Intelligence. And the mission is, is to go find the old starship that uh, both Admiral Pressman and Commander Riker served on, which was the USS Pegasus, which was an Oberth-class uh, vessel. Which, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, that seems, you know, there's nothing very odd about that. Um, you know, or there's nothing, like, really seemingly devious about it, because the Pegasus, uh, or and the Oberth-class, is generally a science vessel. So it's harmless. It's not like they're going to go find a warship, or so they think. And when they go to find the Pegasus, they find it melded literally into melded with an asteroid. Like it's inside an asteroid and it's not inside like some kind of like asteroid base. It's literally melded with the asteroid. And this is, uh, you know, it raises a whole ton of questions. You're like, what the fuck happened with that? <laughs> okay. And what you find out is, and this is, I'll, I'll explain why this episode, I, I feel it's so good. I mean, it has some good drama between Pressman, Picard, and, and Riker, because Riker has to choose between an old commanding officer and, of course, you know, it, Picard, who's the commanding officer now and, and is obviously one that he respects more than anybody else in the galaxy. Um, and what you find out is, is that the Pegasus, you know, decades ago, or a decade ago, was an experiment, a Starfleet experiment with cloaking technology, which the Starfleet signed a treaty, the Treaty of Algeron, I believe, that says they will not develop cloaks, you know, cloaking devices like the Romulans have, like the Klingons have and some others. Uh, I think the Breen might have a cloaking device as well. Uh, or no, Breen have disruptor technology. That's that's the relationship the Breen have. Not that you ever really see the Breen. <laughs> uh, so they, they, this is Starfleet developing cloaking technology, but not just your regular cloaking technology, phase cloaking. Now, phase cloaking means that you don't just, you know, you don't just disappear. You can actually like, uh, you end up phasing literally like kind of in and out of, ex like you cloak from existence more or less. And you know, you, you're like a fate, your molecules are phasing to where you can actually go through things. So you don't just disappear, uh, you know, physically, like you can't see, but you actually disappear to where you could walk through something. Uh, and there's an episode of a kind of a, an infamous episode of the next generation where you find out about phase cloaking, um, where I think it's in season five, where it's funny because a phase cloaking accident happens. And I think Jordy and Ensign Rowe end up like being in constant flux, constant phased cloaked flux and nobody can see them or whatever, but they can like walk through walls. They can do all this stuff. And the, the reason why this episode's so infamous is that they, for some reason, even though they can walk through walls, they never fall through the floor out into space. <laughs> so anyway, uh, just a, a fluky little episode, not even really worth mentioning because the Pegasus is a great episode. It's good drama and it raises, you know, it has that interesting thing of, you know, about the cloaking technology. Um, and what's really good about it is that it shows Starfleet, uh, 
you know, that Starfleet has kind of secret ops. You know, this is before the idea of Section 31, which would get played up in later Star Trek series. Uh, this is what Section 31 is like kind of this NSA CIA type, uh, you know, really secretive uh, group within Starfleet that exists within the Starfleet Charter or it's allowed to exist within the Starfleet Charter. That's where it gets, uh, you know, the name Section 31 because it's Section 31 of the Starfleet Charter. And so you, you start to get this hint that, uh, you know, that that Starfleet isn't always the good guys, which is kind of comforting in a way, because especially if you're an anarchist, because a Starfleet isn't always the good guys. It still proves that even in the 24th century, government sucks at what it does. OK, <laughs> because by and large, one could argue, you know, that Starfleet or at least the Federation um, is a government. If In fact, Starfleet might be a military dictatorship, as some have said. Uh, I'm not going to go there, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, so, but this is interesting that, and this gives a lot of credence to, uh, I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite Star Trek movies, which is Star Trek Insurrection, the next generation film, uh, where in that also Starfleet, you find out don't always have people's best interests at heart or aren't always the good guys. Uh, but it's interesting. It, it raises kind of a conundrum. And it was this episode, Pegasus, the episode, the Pegasus from season seven, uh, created for me anyway, a lot of great conversation with other Star Trek fans. Uh, and the conversation was, why doesn't Starfleet have cloaking devices? Now, Gene Roddenberry, uh, you know, cause again, I mean this, this phase cloaked ship, you know, like when Picard figures out what it is, Picard flips out. It's like, what are we doing developing cloaking technology? We had the treaty of Eldron. We can't do that. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so, but anyway, the argument about that, Gene Roddenberry said about cloaking devices that, look, the good guys don't have to hide. Um, and it's interesting that this this whole idea doesn't even get toyed with until a couple of years after Gene Roddenberry is dead in real life. <laughs> you know, maybe he would have never let it happen. We do know like that Gene Roddenberry actually said, no, you're not going to make a show about a space station like Deep Space Nine. Uh, it wouldn't work, which actually he was kind of right, because tacitly Deep Space Nine admitted that in like season four when they got the Defiant. Uh, but anyway, that that's we'll save that. If you want to hear DS9 top eight, we'll save that story for that. Uh, so Gene Roddenberry didn't think that the, the good guys needed to hide. Um, and it's interesting, too, because some would say, well, in the original series, in the third season, there's an episode where uh, Kirk and Spock are trying to steal, um, you, you know, a cloaking device from the Romulans. And this is true. But again, keep in mind, once more, in the third season of, of the original series of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry was rarely involved. So he wouldn't have been there to, you know, to make that claim that, hey, the good guys uh, don't hide. So, uh, you know, so that that's you take that. OK, fine. That's why in the show, in in the writer's Bible of the show, you know, the Starfleet's not supposed to have cloaking devices. But it did raise the question is like, so what exactly is wrong with having a cloaking device? You know, and, and Admiral Pressman, you know, makes the point that it leaves Starfleet at a tactical disadvantage uh, to not have it, etc. And uh, yeah, it, it, it does just come off as dumb, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the amazing thing, because it's like it was one of those rare conversations in the 90s, uh, even in the later 90s after the next generation had ended, where. Uh, you know, a lot of people were asking, it's like, yeah, you know, Starfleet kind of got this wrong, you, you know, I mean, and these are the fun mental games that you play with in fictional worlds. I mean, this is the spice of life is talking about shit that doesn't even actually exist, but treating it to be serious as a heart attack. 
And uh, the Pegasus really allowed for that to to happen, uh, you know, for that 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 to occur, that conversation to occur. I'm sure it's very much the reason why uh, the aforementioned Defiant from Deep Space Nine would have its own cloaking device as well because of uh, of a time uh, of war. Um, but that that didn't even get into because that, that's the thing. That's the other part that they never even discuss is that a phase cloaking device has incredible and this never gets talked about, not even in the episode of the Pegasus, a phase cloaking device has the incredible potential of exploration. Like what could you explore by the fact that you could actually go into it and not be affected by what you're going into? You know, I mean, like literally going into the heart of asteroids where scanners can't even penetrate. Uh, there's tremendous scientific, you know, possibilities when you have a phase cloak. Um, so, but it's ironic too, and, and it becomes a real problem because the Treaty of Eldron, uh, they get a, a special pass for that, which again, that's the treaty with the Romulans and, and the Klingons or whatever that says we, you know, Starfleet will not develop um, cloaking technology. It's strange because there's episodes of Star Trek. This is before the Defiant, which the Defiant is a ship, a, a battleship created for D Space Nine to fight the Dominion, where they get a special pass that says, okay, this one Starfleet ship can have a cloaking device. Okay. In fact, they even had like a, originally there was supposed to be a Romulan cast member that was supposed to be there to keep track of that cloaking device, <laughs> you know, but that, that ended up not necessarily, you know, that, that act, that character didn't stick with it um, regardless, but there's points where Starfleet is studying inferior or what they would call uh, not inferior species, but spe species with inferior technology that are pre-warp. So they can introduce themselves, but they're doing anthropological research to see what it's like for these like really, you know, antiquated civilization styles, uh, how they exactly, come to you know how, how do they come to be what can we learn about earth from watching these other worlds and these other civilizations you know come into their own and and it's you know i i get it why people would do that but it's interesting because in that respect they usually are cloaking these outposts that are on these planets that where they're watching what other people are doing very strange so <laughs> So it really brings to light. Anyway, the, the beauty of the episode, the Pegasus is that it, it really brings to light the fact that, uh, that Starfleet is not always the good guys by a long shot. And it is a rare episode to do that. Um, I mean, really fucking rare to, to do that. Uh, I can't necessarily think of anywhere else where clearly a whole bunch of people in Starfleet got together and said, we're going to do this, uh, you know, at, before that time. You know, D Space Nine would would go into that and some others would go into that, but like with Section 31. But that didn't exist when this episode was done. So uh, it's pretty unique in that way. Uh, a, a great episode. And I, of course, I was always a big fan of the Oberth class vessels because I love the idea of science vessels as compared to warships. And so I thought it was pretty cool for there to be an Oberth class that had a cloaking technology that blew away anything any other, uh, you know, major uh, race or empire had uh, in the show. So anyway. We got one more to go, <laughs> one more episode in our top eight for the next generation. And so let's get right into it. And this episode is all good things. And this is the very last episode of the next generation. Uh, it is it was a two hour premiere in 94. Uh, I watched it. I, I very avidly watched it on that day. In fact, uh, when this was premiered in 94, it um, they did like a like a like an eight hour marathon before that on Fox 
uh, where they showed like the, you know, they, they did like this countdown to the best episodes of Star Trek. They did a bunch of Star Trek memories. Uh, they did a, a making special of the next generation. And they talked to some degree about Star Trek Generations, which was the movie that everybody knew was going to be coming out uh, after the show ended. Um, and uh, it was, it was, you know, it was really, it was a major event when Star Trek, the next generation ended. No other, you know, when D space nine ended, uh, very little fanfare when that ended, when Voyager ended, very little fanfare when enterprise ended, you know, when Star Trek enterprise ended in, in 05, uh, I mean, seemingly nobody cared. Uh, I cared about all of them, but regardless, uh, <laughs> when, when the next generation ended, I mean, it was huge. It was a media event. And I don't think this episode disappointed uh, in any way. And it had a lot to live up to. And I think it, it did it with aplomb. I think it did it as well as it could. Um, in fact, Stephanie and I got to got to watch this episode uh, again pretty recently. So or, as I mentioned, during our vacation and, um, you know, if you watch it now, it comes as a two parter and whatever. And, and it you can watch it that way because it, it does a pretty good cliffhanger between the two. Um, but the episode is, you know, Picard is more or less suddenly finds himself shift, you know, shifting through time, time traveling. Like he finds himself 25 years in the future. Then he finds himself seven years in the past when he's first boarding the Enterprise. And then he finds himself in the present. And Q eventually, you know, comes comes around and you find out that uh, more or less Q had this entire seven year mission or it was supposed to be a five year mission. But, uh, of course, Picard would say the continuing mission. Uh, <laughs> but in this, you know, over the seven years, um, you know, Q is pretty much has come to the conclusion that uh, that he tried to say in the very first episode of The Next Generation that humanity has failed. Uh, you know, that humanity is not worthy to be out amongst the stars. And so humanity is going to be destroyed and the Q aren't going to do it, but humanity is going to do it to itself. And there ends up being this paradoxical, um, like, uh, uh, subspace anomaly that ends up eating, like, like destabilizing the molecules of everything around it. And it looks more or less like it's actually going to wipe out, uh, at the very least the entire Milky way galaxy. In fact, it gets, it's kind of, it's a paradox because it gets bigger the further back in time you go into. And it brings up the idea of anti-time. And so there's like matter and antimatter. And of course that's how warp works. You have a matter and antimatter reaction, which is provided by the fact that you get enough energy from the dilithium crystals, uh, you know, in the warp matrix. And that will, you know, that allows for that. And so then they bring in this idea of time and anti-time, which is a, a fascinating thing that I don't think enough people have possibly considered or looked into, but anti-time of course works in the opposite direction of time, just like matter and antimatter, which antimatter is a real thing. Anti-time is another story, uh, you know, operates in, in, a similar fashion. And, uh, and so, you know, that's fascinating for it to bring up, but what's really cool about all good things was how well they pulled off because he travels, be Picard travels between three time zones, uh, you know, or three, three timelines. He, he goes, you know, to when he first boards the enterprise, in fact, just before he boards the enterprise and Tasha Yar is back and Denise Crosby looks, uh, relatively good for seven years later. She's still looking pretty young. Um, albeit with a different hairstyle, but, uh, that's cool to kind of see what it was like, you know, to, for Picard to go on board the enterprise before you even see what happens, uh, on encounter at far point, which is the first episode of the show. So that was cool to see that, uh, it, it kind of gives you a, you know, a backwards view that you wouldn't expect seven years down the line. And then, but the, I think for a lot of people, the really cool part was 
the, you know, the 25 years into the future. And you find out Picard, uh, you know, is a has become a you know, he, he runs a vineyard. Um, he was married to Dr. Crusher for a brief period of time. And in fact, she keeps the last name of Picard because she becomes the captain of I think it's an Olympic class vessel, which uh, looks a lot like the old uh, Daedalus class which is from before the original series. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's really cool. And, and so it's funny because when, uh, you know, Picard, when Jean-Luc Picard goes on board, uh, Beverly Picard's ship, um, you know, when, and somebody says Captain Picard, they both kind of turn. <laughs> so, so that, that's kind of funny. And then you find out data, uh, data is actually, he's at Oxford. I believe he, he has the, um, uh, the, the Isaac Newton chair, uh, as a, as a teacher, you know, has tenure at Oxford or whatever, um, which is, uh, you know, that, that's, that was kind of cool. And he has like a little gray in his hair and whatever, cause obviously he doesn't actually age, but he just thinks it gives him distinction. And also he seems to have emotions, which until generations, that's not, that's like something that's only toyed with and is generally seen as a bad idea. And even in the movie, Star Trek generations, it's seen as a bad idea. Um, but it's cool to see like, to get this idea of what the future of Starfleet would look like at the time. And that's what makes the episode really so great. It's not so much the storyline. The storyline's good, but uh, what really makes it special is to see the future of Starfleet. And uh, actually, you find out that there is, um, speaking of the Treaty of Eldron, uh, it seems that really all hell has broken loose in the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, you know, there, there's a very uh, tent or you know, tenuous war, uh, possibly between the Klingons and even the Romulans. It's really bad. And Starfleet now uses cloaking devices on a regular basis. <laughs> and there's a point where they're in Klingon space uh, with 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 Dr. or with Beverly Picard's ship. Um, and, uh, and and they're in Klingon space and they get attacked by Klingon battle cruisers, And then suddenly out of nowhere, just decloaks. The Enterprise D, you know, here's this galaxy class ship, but oh boy, is it enhanced. It's got three warp engines now instead of just two, has this gigantic, uh, like, like phase cannon underneath the, uh, the saucer section, which it looks like now it can't do a saucer separation, which was a pretty unique thing, uh, for the next generation and for a starship to do. You don't see it often anywhere else. And, um, and it, it's awesome because when it appears, it decloaks and then it's just one shot. <laughs> You know, it just shoots right up. I made that noise, by the way. And uh, it, uh, you know, just goes right through the the Klingon battlecruisers. And so that was like amazing because you're just like, whoa, man, did Starfleet get powerful in 20 years. And Riker's pretty old and, you know, that that sucks. But whatever. Uh, you know, so that was, that was the really cool part. And you get to see like a, you know, there's a new uniform style that actually looks pretty good. There's a new communicator style. The insignia is all kind of different. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, to, and you kind of get the idea of inside of a couple hours, you get sort of a reunion episode that you generally only get usually 10 years after a show gets canceled, let alone in its own finale. Uh, so that was, that was really cool. Uh, I, I, I think that all good things is, is a top notch, uh, episode and at the end to have Picard, of course, play poker, uh, because, you know, a lot of the a lot of the, the, the main crew playing poker was a common thing where a lot of conversation would occur and even some plot points would happen uh, throughout the next generation's run uh, to have Picard finally sit down and play poker was uh, was pretty awesome. So uh, just a, a great episode. And I don't want to go much longer with this, 
I think I, I think I, I covered uh, the bulk of it again. All good things really did put a nice end on it. Uh, but most people knew. I think there's there's people who don't feel it was such a great episode. I, I totally disagree. But most people, I think, gave it a pass because they knew Generations, the movie Star Trek Generations, was going to come out very soon after. Uh, you know, it was it was in production. So, you know, and then Generations was sadly kind of lackluster. And maybe that made all good things look that much better. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it. The next generation. I mean, easily, you know, there's a lot of a lot of controversy around it in that like LeVar Burton, who played Geordie LaForge, commonly said they should have never made more Star Trek shows because the next generation was just this rarity. It was lightning striking twice. And, you know, maybe there's a point to that. Uh, maybe that's that's true. I definitely would not say as much as I love Enterprise and I love Voyager. Uh, I mean, I, I and, and I love Deep Space Nine. Uh, maybe it's true. You know, none of them really captured the same level of uh, of great storytelling, great acting. I mean, the acting, it's its all good. It's all still good, but it's just not like it's not that next level stuff, you know, where you're just like, holy Christ, anybody could watch this and, and be entertained. Uh, you really, especially with Voyager and Enterprise, you kind of you had to be a Star Trek fan to really like it. As to where with the next generation, just it would it turned you into a Star Trek fan if you weren't. Um, so, you know, I get it. I get it. A lot of people say, yeah, I was only a fan of the next generation. I didn't bother with anything else. Yeah. I don't think that's an unfair claim because everything else doesn't necessarily compare. The original series does, uh, the original series is, you know, phenomenal, but, uh, but the next generation definitely stands, you know, head and shoulders above, uh, the rest, uh, as far as overall quality. Okay, now I'm not saying it's my favorite Star Trek. I'm just saying as far as overall quality, it stands head and shoulders above all the, uh, you know, anything that came after it. And uh, the movies were, of course, for, for the next generation were, were fantastic. Uh, generations, I still like Generations, but uh, it, it doesn't like First Contact, Insurrection and Nemesis. I thought all three of those were were really something. Uh, and Nemesis especially that, you know, a lot of people kind of gave that a bad rap and thought it was a sad, kind of a sad way for the next generation to, to end its, you know, its timeline more or less. Um, I disagree. I, I thought, I thought that was, that was great stuff. Uh, in, in particular, because it kind of went back to that darker Star Trek that, uh, we kind of highlighted in the special. Uh, I, I really, I think Nemesis deserves a second chance if, uh, you know, if no one's, if no one's really given it a good look. In fact, I'd love to find, maybe I'll have to do it myself. I'd love to get, not that I have the time right now, uh, but I'd love to get an edit because the deleted scenes from Nemesis, uh, are really good and they actually flesh a lot of things out. Um, but you know, there's never been like a director's cut of, of Nemesis as to where you've gotten that to, well, you've never gotten it with any of the next generation films, but with some of the original series movies, like Star Trek six is longer, uh, Star Trek two, you can get a longer version of that. And of course, Star Trek, the motion picture, the director's cut is fucking brilliant. Like really? <laughs> so maybe in the future they'll do it. But anyway, so there you have it. Your top eight for the next generation. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> there's tons more I could have done. There's, there's so many other great episodes. Yesterday's enterprise is, is, you know, phenomenal. Let history, 
uh, never forget the name Enterprise. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, that that that's top drawer stuff. There, there's so many great episodes. It's really tough to boil it down to eight. Uh, and I know some people shared their top eight, and I, I really appreciate uh, you know connecting with people in that way. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget regular episode of the show coming out this week. Uh, never fails. I'm always there for you, baby. <laughs> and uh, we got a whole lot to talk about in, in the next episode of Sovereign Tech, as we always do. We're going to talk a little bit more about the whole money thing, too. So because <laughs> I don't think I got everything out uh, that I wanted to, that I really wanted to get across. And a lot of people had a lot of questions about it. So keep listening for that. Uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Of course, Carpe Lucem, everybody. I'll see you on the other side. just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com, that's S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com, and connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution.